At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I am your co-host, Christopher Mukigana Harrington, joined by my North by Northeast, Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston. Brandon, how are you today? Uh, I'm fine. I, uh... I just experienced Christmas, and I haven't experienced New Year's yet, because it's December 30th as we record here, and uh, you have uh, forced me to wake up at the ungodly hour of 9 a.m. Eastern Time on a Saturday morning to record WrestleNomics Radio, so I, I'm, I'm ready to go. I've got a, uh, a new iPhone, which is not a Christmas present. I guess it's a Christmas present to myself, but it's uh, it's an iPhone 8, and I uh, I still, it doesn't work, it doesn't uh, call or text yet. I don't know what's going on. It's big. It's a little bit too big for my hand. Like, I don't know how I'm going to reach my thumb all the way across the screen. But uh, Did you order this from some Chinese eBay seller or something? How did yeah, you get an iPhone I, that, I almost, that doesn't yeah. call? Well, it, it's just not set up on my service yet. But uh, I was going to buy an iPhone from some, like, uh, I don't know, Scandinavian website. and I'm Shady reseller, yes. Yeah. And it was going to be for like $200, like $178, iPhone 7 or something like that. And I was like, all right, I'll see what happens here. It'll save me like $400. But I, I made the order and then, then it didn't, uh, I don't know, they wanted me to, to send my money through some other system or something like that. So I think I had already submitted my credit card information though, so maybe they already have my credit card information. They're, uh, you know, stealing my identity and, uh, and stealing all my money as we speak. Yeah, yeah. There's all these new apps. Have you seen this? You have the iPhone too, right? I, I um, there's. This I don't app. have the cool apps. 
the Numbers app. Have you heard of this? I think I know it exists. I've never used it. It's a sp- I, it's, I guess it's just Apple's version of Excel. Look at that. It's on my phone. Yeah. Oh, there you go. No, yeah. No, it, it is there. I think I played with it once on my iPad a long, long time ago. And but, I think uh, it's, it's meant for sharing, too, like so you can share spreadsheets with people, just like Google Sheets. You know, here's my issue with Google Sheets is um, they, they've done a, a better job of making pivot tables a little bit more intuitive. But what annoys the heck out of me is that when certain Excel spreadsheets get brought into Google Docs, they remove the filters that have been placed at the top. And this causes the voices of wrestling guys to come to me with uh, concerns and questions as they prepare the New Japan ebook and say, why are all these teams that never existed showing up on our tag team spreadsheet here, Mookie? What have you done? And uh, forcing me to to explain that, you know, the same team filter was turned off or the uh, exclude ROH and RevPro show filter has been turned off. And so finally, I just have to go into the file and delete all the old data and then reload the pivots. So that is that is my anger is that uh, as inefficient as Excel is, it is still far more efficient than a lot of these other knockoff versions. And uh, it, it gets uh, cumbersome sometimes for me to translate my sheets up into Google Docs, which I like for sharing, but uh, is is sometimes a lot harder for me to actually get it in the order and the format that I'm so used to. So I don't know whether that requires a lot more work on my part to learn how to use Google Docs or a lot more work on their part to make it more Excel friendly. I still don't understand but, how to use pivot tables. I was still, telling I still, you, I, I'm going to teach you some Power Pivot when we're coming up next time here. Yeah, That's is, our 2018 goal. I see that tab in, in Excel, but I've it's just scary and intimidating to me. Um. One use of Power Pivot. I'm so people are so excited that a wrestling podcast is beginning off yeah, with a, it's be one a of the analytic show. WrestleMomics Radio colon Excel Power tips. Pivot. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, Power Pivot's good for if you have certain data sources that you're going to load in over and over again, like you're importing in, and maybe they have a whole lot of different rows, maybe even more rows than what Excel can normally handle. Um, Power Pivot basically lets you manipulate those rows. And then turn them into a table that then you can access. Yeah. So you never actually have to have the data source necessarily live within your file there. So it kind of lets you have an external database access. And then additionally, you can manipulate that data. So you could combine rows or, or whatnot. So what I'll, what I might do with Power Pivot is take all my old cage match data. And then they used to always use like three periods between each um, a thing. And so then I would turn that into some kind of delimiter and then turn those delimiters into uh, columns. And then with Power Pivot, it makes it really easy for you to quickly pivot those columns so that they become actually just one column. And so you can combine, you know, instead of having 40 columns, one with each guy from the Royal Rumble, uh, it's now just one column labeled one through 40. So I, I do a lot of that in Power Pivot. And then, of course, there's I'll, much uh, more, you know, I'll business to this specific. recording later and I'll try to understand what you're talking about. Yeah, there's more business-specific uses for it, but most of my analogies are always going to be about how to manipulate wrestling data. So, Like, what is this manage calculated fields KPIs? you think this is what W uses to create their KPIs? They obviously yeah, use Excel, right? I use a lot of managed calculated fields, though. That's a good field, too, to learn. But uh, that's how you can create something like, you know, max days off, like I did for uh, my Iron Man stats this week. But, no, Christmas was fun. Christmas, I got... Uh, I got a book on programming Atari 2600. I got a book on programming my Apple IIe. I got um, uh, Crazy Like a Fox, the uh, the biography of uh, Brian Pillman uh, that I'm really excited to go read. And I got two different books about Tetris. Wow. 
Yeah, there's Tetris. You want to talk about great legal battles and global politics. Uh, Tetris is like a, I always think if I did a drunk history, it'd probably be about Tetris. There's Speaking a, of drunk history, I got some awesome coffee or um, cafe uh, whiskey from Japan. It's really good. Oh, that's right. I saw that. It's a uh, grain grain alcohol, right? <laughs> no, it's whiskey. No, it says it's. You, there's a picture of it though, right? And it yeah, says but it, grain. it uses like it uses like corn grain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's 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 the the malt the the mash or whatever for right. it. But it's not. You know, I'm not drinking Everclear or something here. When you say grain alcohol, it makes me think we're talking. You know, I, I did get that for my wife maybe a year ago or two Everclear? years ago. You know, no, it was white whiskey, but it basically was like grain alcohol. And uh, I've spent the last two, three years here trying to slowly dilute it into different things so we can just drink this bottle without throwing it away because it is, it is undrinkable. It's like rubbing alcohol. Yeah. Well, if you combine it with distilled water or rainwater, you'll be avoiding the, uh, the fluoridation uh, communist conspiracy that we're all up against here. You betcha. So 2017 is coming to a close. Russell Lomics uh, been yeah. growing bigger than ever, and uh, 2018 is going to be some good stuff. I'm going to a New Year's Day New Year's Day party a day early here, so I'm happy about that. Really? Yeah. And a New yeah. Year's Day party, be not on New Year's Eve. That's what old people do. This is what I'm doing with the the curling team I, I'm with here. We're going to go play board games. Okay. So, so we'll probably play some Captain Sonar, some other stuff. That's like real time Battleship. I, I got Wegman's gift cards for Christmas. Oh, I like that. That's That'd what I be... ask for every year, and that's what I get. And I've already spent them all. I've, I, I got. <laughs> I went to the grocery store and I bought groceries, and my gift cards are already spent. I feel like this is going to be like the uh, the pro wrestling sheet headline is WrestleNomics host. They're just like you, and it's going to be a yeah. picture of you wheeling out of a um Wegmans with your cart just kind of in that that surprised look like a paparazzi picked you up mm-hmm. so lastly i just want to touch on this you you posted on um twitter that you uh discovered your myers brig type yeah I, what i was gonna say is that um now people aren't just like us because the intp personality type this website says this only accounts for three percent of the population i don't know if i'd believe that but yeah uh that's what it says so I did – you you did the, the online test that probably took, you know, 10 minutes or less. Yeah, it was like 100 questions. Yeah, I did the super extensive Myers-Briggs test with type 2 um, where, you know, the company pays a whole lot of money and gets a facilitator and does all that stuff. And uh, I work, did – Your work paid for it? Yeah, my work paid wow. for it. Yeah, As part of my management training when I went to Denmark in February. Wow. So. There's a lot of different phrases in there that just doesn't seem right, huh? Um, and so, yeah, we did it all. And uh, it, it's interesting, but I honestly think that 99% of these descriptions, if I give them to somebody and say, does this sound like you? You'd think hard and long and be like, yeah, this kind of sounds like certain things I do. And then, you know, uh, someone once said to me that it's astrology for humanists. And I was like, that is a very good description of Myers-Briggs. Yeah. Is that if you think it somehow guides the way you are, you're you're pretty much just letting a, a piece of paper with vague phrases that apply to everyone. Like I am comfortable in certain so- social situations, but other ones I feel removed. You know, everybody feels that way. So, it's I I will agree that when you you meet the people that are like ENTJs versus the uh, INTPs, they they do come off a little bit different. But um, it's it's funny to me sometimes that uh, apparently WrestleNomics are INTPs. Isn't yeah. that right? That's what so we that discovered is, here. 
That is what we've discovered. Um, mm. But, you know, even when it starts going through and being like, here's the famous people from history that are the same as you. It's like, well, they didn't take the test. This is you applying yeah. your own logic. Rene Descartes, he, he took a – he went yeah, to 16personalities.com <laughs> after he was done writing the meditations and he, uh, you know, he found out he was INTP. Yeah. So I, I always have my uh, my qualms with these things, but uh, it, it it can be interesting to understand where your blind spots are, where you realize, wow, there are people that do get charged by going to a party rather than feel that they're being charged to go to the party. So, you know, it is different. So that was that was fun. Um, and I'm looking forward to the, the new year for 2018 here. We got some new ideas. We're getting new logos for Russell Lomics Radio. We just started rolling out. I got an infinity cube for a. Uh, for Christmas here that I asked for. Do you know what that is? No, what's an infinity cube? It's like a little fidget toy for adults. And oh. so it's kind of like a Jacob's ladder. So it's like a, a, a four by two little grid and then you can like flip it over and then it becomes a cube and then it kind of unfolds each in, in a continually evolving pattern. So I really want to see if I can throw like a logo on it and see what it would look like to like uh, a, a Rubik's cube, but harder. No, it's the exact opposite. It's like a Rubik's cube, but for 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 people who really can only do one of two motions, uh, <laughs> it's super super easy. It's just a just a toy. It's just a toy. But uh, I'm thinking about putting some branding on one of them and just seeing what it looks like to uh, to to give to people. Of course, we got some new logos, so I'm hoping to make some coffee mugs and yeah. and uh, send it to the people. And then you know, who you knows what that all blue logo as opposed to the black and blue logo. You like that I don't blue know. one better. I, you know, I gotta. I think we might have to take it to the wisdom of the masses because if there's one thing that I learned this week from Twitter, this week from you know everything else I do in my life, it's that what I think is going to be interesting and popular never corresponds to what the people get really, really into. So, uh, for instance, this week uh, I, I found this filing about WWE revenue filings from 1984 through 1990. And I thought, this is the coolest thing I've ever found. And I put it on Reddit, and I got four likes. Four. It's just too meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, uh, I I did a tweet about Jimmy Osu. Usu. Usu. Jimmy Osu. How how do you say Uso? Uso. Thank you. I don't know why I'm I'm struggling with his name suddenly. Uh, It's too early in the morning, I guess. Uh, And it exploded. And what, what annoyed me the most is where I actually tweeted out the graph to explain the chart the table i guess it would be that explained you know here's the methodology here's what it's using here's all the different people here's how you can kind of see where they land nobody cared about that one which actually explained you know what it was i was doing and you know would have said okay maybe mookie's methodology is a little off here maybe we shouldn't trust just a random tweet from a guy maybe there's some issues with the fact that nxt matches are being included but fcw matches are not no that, that would and take time to to read and think that, that that would take too much that's too technical and people aren't going to even engage that far but instead this this jimmy uso tweet just just exploded. I I got hundreds of new followers because of this tweet. Wow. Yeah, I, and it wasn't that even that interesting of a tweet. And it just basically said that that Dean Ambrose got injured. He had done my my calculation was a thousand fifty four matches. Um, I would have to look here to see if that a thousand fifty four includes um uh, includes any appearances that are not matches, but just you know times that he's shown up somewhere. Um, would that, would that what appear I, on cage match though? Uh, so here's the thing: it doesn't appear in cage match, but it appears on Mookie match. 
because um, what, what I do is I go, I take the cage match results. I go through and I process them all myself. I do all the name corrections myself. And then one thing that cage match doesn't really include is any of the width appearances. But I break those out when I do the calculations so that I'm able to count, you know, how many times is Lana Bennett shows. Because there's a lot of wrestlers like Lana or Maurice or other people who or, or even Xavier Woods, um, you know, who is the extra wheel in, a, in a, a duo or in a singles. But, you know, they're still traveling to all these shows. And I think they deserve some credit for, you know, having to show up all around the country hundreds but of how, times how a year. How do you know if they're really there? Do they actually appear in the results? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll say so and so with blank, so and so with blank. And is that consistent? Um, Are they omitted sometimes? Um, it's fairly consistent. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think yeah, it's fairly consistent from what I can tell. Mm-hmm. What I can tell. I mean, honestly, I'm not going to every house show and yeah. trying to look up to see if so and so actually showed up with so and so. But uh, for the most part, you know, you you do see it a lot with the new day where yeah. you know they'll take two guys and then the third guy will be there. And especially because that third guy is oftentimes getting involved in the match in some way, I feel like it's really important to count it. And then especially when you're doing stats like what I was trying to do, which was Iron Man stats, where I was trying to figure out how many times does a guy continue to work consecutively in wrestling without taking a break of X amount of days. And the real reason I was digging into this was I really wanted to get into um, injury stats of, okay – What's the easiest way to find when a guy gets injured? And then what's the easiest way to find when a guy gets seriously injured or girl? And the the idea there being that just because someone misses two weeks doesn't necessarily mean that they're super injured. It just means they miss two weeks. And you can usually plan around a two-week absence. What's tough to plan out around is something like what just happened to Dean Ambrose where you know WWE is pushing the narrative that he might be out for nine months. He tore his tricep. He's in He's in really bad shape. And we know that's going to be a many-month injury, just like Seth Rollins had a many-month injury, versus something like Roman Reigns went with the mumps, where he was out. But you know, in total, Roman Reigns was only it the mumps missed. Now? Is that the final answer? Oh, I don't know meningitis. what it was. Viral, I mean, I'm sorry, viral meningitis. I think the most days he actually missed in 2016 was 33 days, and the most he missed in 2017 was 28 days. So I mean, there, there's a big difference there. To you know, should you call a guy? in Iron Man or not, if he misses X amount of days. So I chose an arbitrary number. I chose the number of 40 days. Now, 40 days is a lot. That's a whole month. So you you could easily say someone is not an Iron Man if they're missing a month of work. You know, if you were gone for a month from work, I don't think people would consider you an Iron Man. They'd consider you a a truant. Part-timer. Yeah, exactly. So there there is something to be said that I, I used a very liberal definition of Iron Man here. Um, and part of that was was because I really wanted to kind of get around um, when certain people might have had a very long period of time and still include them in the stats, specifically Dean Ambrose, because Dean Ambrose had 35 days in 2014 and 37 days in 2012 that between matches. And so I kind of wanted to include Dean Ambrose as the guy. And so I designed the stat for the guy. And I said, well, Dean Ambrose did in my count, 1,054 matches. And, um, he only missed 12 days in between matches for 2015, 2016 and 2017. So that's an impressive streak there where if you're working as a wrestler and you're only have a max of 12 days off and that's going to include holidays and other times when, you know, European tour where you're coming back and sometimes they almost give you a week and a half off that that's pretty intense. 
Um, but I wanted to, you know, make it a big number. So if I, in order to go all the way back to kind of 2012, I got to go back quite a way. And so I said a thousand matches there and I used this less than 40 number. Well, this less than 40 number is going to exclude a guy like Dolph Ziggler in 2015. He had 48 days off. Besides that, the most he's ever had is 26 days. So he normally is actually very, very, very consistent in terms of it. And so if you really asked me who's the Iron Man in WWE, I would actually probably say it's Dolph because Dolph has had 1,400 some matches in the last uh, six years here, seven years here. And he's at most missed 48 days, which I think is pretty impressive because he hasn't been injured that I can. He had concussion issues. Yeah. But even that was only a few weeks. Like I, I went and looked that up and it really hasn't been that long. So all the times he's been hurt. He's only missed a few weeks at most. He's never been off for two, three months. He's never went out to get surgery. Um, you know, he was talking about whether or not he was going to resign. And th- so I think at one period he might have um, kind of toned down his schedule because he was thinking a little bit about, you know, doing more stand-up or comedy or acting or things like that. And they might have given him a little bit more time off. But in my mind, I think, you know, he had already hit 1,039 matches by 2015 by the time um, – just looking at 2010 to 2015 – He'd already hit the same number of matches as Dean. He hit 48 days the one time. And then since then, he's done another um, minimum of 300 matches. And if you include 2015, that's another 471 matches. So, I mean, he's done thousands, more than almost 1,500 matches. So I think I think Dolph Ziggler's realistically your Iron Man. However, because of the funny definition I used about Jim, Jimmy Uso, Jimmy days. Uso won. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's interesting because, I mean, and he did have some times like in uh, 2014, the Usos only missed a total of six days, seven days. One was six, one was seven. That's impressive. That's a lot of appearances um, for these guys. And so they've been very consistently under um, 30, except for last year when they, they hit 34 one time. Uh, but that I was really impressed with that with the Usos there. And it was a name that I was not expecting. So I thought it would be kind of fun to talk about it in that way where this funny made up definition I used, it put Jimmy Oso first. But a guy like Kofi Kingston, he had never missed more than 30 days except for in 2013 and then again in this year in 2017 when they took off time between the Raw to SmackDown switch. And I think uh, Kofi did have ankle surgery um, and things like that. But it's intriguing to me just, you know, there's a lot of different ways you could define things. Swagger had an incredible streak. Uh, not, never a guy that you would think about, but in the last seven years here, Swagger is probably number five for most matches. He has Swagger had more matches in the last um, last seven years here than John Cena did. Um, so we should expect Jimmy Oso to be on an injured list soon. I don't know. I don't know. Um, possibly. What what I was trying to look at is is what was you know when a guy flips. When a guy needs more than 40 days between matches, for whatever reason, how many matches uh, did they have kind of before that if they're in the upper echelon? And what I found was, you know, once you cross the threshold of 500, the probability that you are probably going to go on that maybe going to get injured list goes way up. And that's consistent with the theory that there's guys that year over year over year are wrestling a lot of matches and then they get hurt. So that's the Cesaros or the Ambroses or um, so forth. But it, it's not a guarantee. I mean, every year you could have said, well, Ambrose is going to get hurt this year, and he didn't. Uh, Cody Rhodes did probably 1,100 matches between 2010 and 2016, 
and never, as far as I could tell, took a lot of time off. He was very, very consistent. He was he was an Iron Man in a way uh, for WWE for for a while there um, versus a guy like Miz. Miz had, is number four for most matches in WWE uh, over the last seven years here. But he takes a lot of time where he'll go over 30 days because he's shooting a movie or doing something else. Uh, Sheamus is number three for most matches, and he, he injured a lot in 2013 and 2014. So it's a combination of how much do you get pushed on television because that's going to drive your match count up, especially on Monday, Tuesdays and Sundays. And how much are you um, working on in between shows? And then, you know, are you asking for time off and and whatnot? So and if you, if ask you think about time it, off, are you going to be punished? Yeah. And if you think about it, a thousand matches, right? Yeah. If you're doing at most 200 matches a year, which is, you know, right now. The most matches for anybody I counted in WWE is probably going to be about 170, 175. And that's like Jinder and AJ and Cesaro and Sheamus and Ambrose, who's, you know, out of the running Corbin and Zayn and Charlotte Flair and Nakamura and Banks and Jordan and Natalia and Rollins and Owens and Enzo and Nia, you know. That that's the top guys. And even when I get down to Nia, she's probably only going to be at like 140 matches for the year. So if you're talking a thousand matches, it's going to take you five years to get there on a WWE schedule. So you got to be going straight for five years. So even when I talk 500 years, 500 matches, think about that. That's usually two and a half years. Well, most people's contract cycles are in two to three year cycles. You know, they're usually three year cycles with kind of two years. And then we have the option to renew for a third is, is generally what I think the language is around. So you tend to see guys kind of appearing and disappearing once they hit the main roster in kind of these three years from the date that they signed or they they came up um so it's intriguing to me just the idea that to say is it 500 matches is it is it your age you know is it your your ring years you know aj styles has a lot of ring years on his body even though he's only been in wwe for two years um is it you know cesaro's got a lot of ring wear on his body um kofi you know was really persevering for for quite some time here by by not getting himself killed and then you know you'll hear Miz talk about it a lot himself that he has managed to wrestle consistently in WWE without serious serious injury you know he he broke it a tooth here and been hurt here but for the most part he's he, because of the style he does and he'll argue that makes him more valuable to the company because he they can rely on him to be there yeah so i don't reading uh Everything that you compiled here and read this line for me that says, my estimate suggests that once someone has done over 500 matches without taking a 40-day break, their likelihood of being injured goes up a lot. Um, so wouldn't it be economically smart for WWE to give people a break? Let's say if you've worked 500 matches with without a 40-day break, which is exactly what, what you were looking at, right? Why not just give people like, let's say, a 60-day break from house shows and still make them available for TV and pay-per-view, but at least they don't have to work like three house shows a week for two months. And I th- absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, again, we're talking every two and a half years here is when you're going to get a guy in that situation. Right. So and, and can, you, would, can you afford to take someone off every two and a half years for two right. two months? And my answer would be yes. Yeah. And, and like this, this would give your, your talent more longevity. They'll stay healthy longer. They'll be more available. You'll end up getting more matches, I think, out of them in the long Well, I don't know. You'll end up getting more TV matches out of them in the long run. It'll take them off house shows. But 
all the studying that we've done of house show attendance in the last couple of years. I mean, Cena made a difference to attendance earlier this decade and probably before that as well. We don't see anybody who makes a remarkable difference in, in house show attendance at the moment, not even Roman Reigns, not even John Cena. Um, so taking cycling some guys off of the house show schedule, I don't think is going to hurt live events. The live it's not going to hurt. It's not going to hurt it. I think the challenge is going to be in the planning because, you know, they like to have kind of a bare bones crew for what they do with a house show and they like to run kind of routines with it. And, and they're I think not they, advertising matches either. They, they advertise names. Sometimes they advertise matches, and then I think sometimes when they advertise matches, they don't necessarily stick to those matches. So, the, so the matches themselves are not a priority. You know? No, no. I just mean from the the, the actual logistics of planning. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it sometimes throws things off when you do have an odd number of guys. So it's like oh, if you take ways. one guy in this area, they yeah, do all these damn three ways and. Yeah. But I mean, I think in, in general, you know, it, it is interesting to see when when certain circumstances come up, how they have to deal with it and who they, they throw together. Um, and then, you know, you have the flip of it, which is there's guys that get brought to television every week that don't do anything. And so they're flying all the way across the country and being away from their family. They don't even get to do anything. And, you know, the best they can think of is, you know, go to go to SmackDown and start a book club or something. You know, it's it's tough on these guys to to spend that time not wrestling. And so you can almost see them pushing for the, for the uh, dark matches or something just to do something because your body is already physically in that arena and you're going to have to sit there for several hours. So, um, I mean, it's, it's, that's a TV, right? I think putting them on house shows though is, uh, you know, do they need to be on house shows that much? And, uh, and again, I think it would, it would, it'll give them more longevity for their talent, which is good for the person and the company. And it'll, it'll, You'd think it would raise morale, right? And just having more people available over a longer period of time creates more depth on the card. And if maybe you can even send them out on those weekends where they're, say, if you're somebody's in a 60-day block where they're not going to work house shows, you can send them out and have them do non-match appearances or whatever. I guess the the issue though would be like, okay, if if I'm going to not, ha- I'm going to be told I can't work house shows for 60 days, does that that means I'm going to get paid less? Ding. Exactly. So one six so just of the pay year. Them, pay them their average, whatever. If they, I don't know if this uh, works out. Now, now we're getting fancy here. Now we're paying people for not working and right. and whatnot. There's going to be a lot of resentment over that because a lot of guys are going to say if the difference is me making, you know, uh, if my average year I make one hundred fifty thousand dollars. I have no idea what a main roster guy makes, but let's let's just pretend this is a low level main roster person. I average year I make 150,000, but you're going to now take me out for 2 months and so now my 150,000 is down to uh, 110,000. That's $40,000 less I'm making this year. And, you know, maybe that's going to really bug someone because certain periods of time if someone says I don't want to sit off the European tour, I want to sit off the uh, the North Dakota tour. And so there's also going to be that element where some guys are going to push back and say I'd rather go work than be off on this tour. And but so could you say it, you have to take a 60 day break within six months or something. You decide when it is, but it's got to be a yeah. 60 day break. I don't know. Well, something I, where you pay them their average fee or whatever it is, whatever the correct terminology would be. They pay, pay them whatever their average fee would be for that entire year for the, the trailing 365 days. Pay them I what, think, what their average house show payment would be for those days that they would have worked. And I think the, the, they, they would say, I'm an independent contractor. And so if you're not, you know, employing me to do this, can't I go out and do what I want and make money for 60 days? But no, I agree with you that there's there's a value. And part of this is to say, 
you need to take a 60 day break. I don't know if you need to always tell guys you need to take a 60 day break or a 40 day break. It could be as simple as this is a break from house shows, not from TV or pay-per-view. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think, I think it would be very interesting to see how that would work. A lot of this in my mind too, is if you're talking 500 matches, you're talking someone who's been on the road for two, two and a half years. So hopefully they would have the, um, you know, the, the, the seniority or the respect in the locker room to be away for that long, you know, that, that it's not Ruby riot is taking off, uh, and getting time off and getting paid for it, but it's more of an Eric Rowan. And you know, how, how will people feel about that? I don't know. I really don't. I think it's a very competitive place. I think it's also a place where people get very, um, paranoid where if they're not in the mix, they're afraid that they're going to be forgotten about. But there's still and so, be a TV in, in, in my theory. Yeah, I, I just think that a lot of guys would feel worried that, you know, house shows might in some ways even be the easier half of it for them because that one has more flexibility about when you show up and what you do and how long your matches are. It's TV that's so constraining to them because you're just going out and doing a one-minute squash, but you're spending eight hours in the building. So it, it would I, – I don't disagree that there's a need for, quote, an off-season and that by rotating talent throughout the year – and not having what you quoted here as the never-ending tour, that you you won't, in fact, be able to reduce the number of injuries, increase morale, and then create an actual entertainment company where you're able to leverage people for more than just as wrestling appearances, but you can help them build their brand and build their skills. You know, this is a company that wants to say that they're they're paying for college, uh, you know, education courses for people, but when when do you have time to take that? You know, to me, it would be make a lot more sense if you're actually saying to people, hey, we're paying for this and here's how you can fit it into your schedule. Yeah. Or give, give them something. Like I said, you could give them something to do, to do on those weekends, like whatever it would be, like autograph appearances or whatever. Or or I guess the al- other alternative is to uh, become like Mexico and Japan and just do more six-man tags and whatnot. But if, if you say that on Twitter, people are going to say, well, they're not going to draw anymore because the fans are used to seeing singles matches, which, by the way, they don't even – advertise singles matches for the most part so so ex- explain your thinking here about what's the difference between someone working 100 singles matches and working 100 tag matches that you're in the time you're in the ring for less time and you take you generally take fewer bumps and so is this coming from the the mindset that the new japan guys while they do a lot of matches sometimes a similar number of matches of what wwe guys do it's that they're in fact wrestling a either different style or a different uh, match type? I think the peak matches are, are a harder style in, let's say, New Japan than it is versus WWE. But they don't work that style every night of the week or, or you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They do that. St- they do singles matches in, say, New Japan. They do singles matches. What do we have here for, say, Okada? Okada had seven. Well, do, you, do, you, do you have stats on this? Do you have stats on number of single matches they do versus the number of tag matches? We, in fact, do. So we have, like, Okada had 17 singles matches in New Japan. If you count all the Ring of Honor and Rev Pro stuff, he had 18 singles matches in the entire year out of 141 matches. And the rest of them were tags. So, and we know, if you've seen any of Okada's matches this year, you know they were probably, you know, they were pretty intense. He was taking, you know, a top rope dragon suplex from Kenny Omega earlier this year in the, in the Tokyo Dome, which is a, an insane bump that they would probably never allow in WWE. So they're, they're taking risks that are pretty high. But, and, and like the G1 tournament is going to be all singles matches, right? Of course. Yeah, that, that's where the bulk of the single ma- singles matches come from. And for Okada, it's probably like his title defenses plus G1 climax plus maybe a, a couple more. 
Um, you know, they work tags all the time, and they just they don't. I don't think they bump quite as much as as WWE guys because they're in tags and because they do a touring system, right? Where you're on tour for like three weeks and then you're off for like two weeks or, or a week and a half. So it's not a never ending tour. There's a sustained break. So you and I were going through, we were looking at, and, and for the purposes of this, I was arguing that let's call all multi-man matches, singles matches. So if it's a four way, if it's a three way, I'm going to call that a singles match, even though I, I can see the argument that yes, this is a, a, you still get some rest. I, I would say it's a lot different than a six man tag like they're doing in new Japan. Yeah. So, um, when I, we I, I would divide the, it among the number of people who are in the match. Sure. Sure. But anyway, so when we look at new Japan, we we see Okada's at like 12% for singles matches. Tanahashi's at 12%. Uh, Naito is at 11%. You get other guys like Kenny Omega. He did do a lot more singles matches. He did probably 26%. 19, though, out of 72. So it's that the denominator was much lower for him is the reason that it's it's a similar number of singles matches, just less overall matches. And he wasn't no, on you get every it. tour. I think he missed one entire tour right after the Tokyo Dome this year. Nagato kind of did a Legends G1 thing this year, and so he did 23 singles matches. Um, and then you, you have the Young Lions, like um, Oka did 32 singles matches in my count, or, or Kawato did 19. But overall, when I looked at guys that did 100-plus New Japan matches, only 11% of their matches were uh, singles matches. So for New Japan, it's about one out of every 10 matches that you do if you're what I'll call a full-time guy who's doing – 100 plus matches and keep in mind even a guy like omega doesn't meet that mark for new japan um even though of course he's a full-time guy um but just to give an idea of how few people are doing 100 plus matches in new japan yeah. when we go to wwe on the other hand like you said it's it's a lot higher for the percentage you got a guy like aj styles aj styles did at least 79 singles matches uh which is 46 percent of his his total and you could probably Double that to almost eighty-one percent if you include all those multi-man, all those three ways and four ways. I think and and hell in the cell and money in the bank and elimination chamber, which in my mind, those are multi-man matches you have to count on as singles because that's an incredible amount of wear and tear on your body. Yeah, I think Styles did a lot of three ways, especially on house shows. Yeah. So you you get kind of a high with with Styles here at eighty-one percent. Then you get to guys like Cena, who only did about maybe 70-some matches this year, but 60% of them were singles matches, and and 78 again if you count the multi-man. So when you count the the four ways. Reigns, 99 uh, singles matches, which is 73%, 77% if you want to include all the multi-man. Rollins did 41, which is 28%, but 31% if you want to include the multi-man. And Ambrose at 59, which is 36%, 43 if you uh, include the multi-man. So you you have some really high ones up there like Roman Reigns where 70% of his matches are going to be singles matches. And that's a lot just the WWE style, right? That they they expect you, if you're the top guy, you're a singles draw, that you're doing a singles match for the most part because they're, they're often using the tag teams – at least the established tag teams more in the middle of the card. You know, occasionally you will have kind of the the uh, the enemies that don't like each other, the Seth Rollins and, and Jason Jordan or something with the tag titles. But for the most part, it's it's if you're a big singles guy, you're in a big singles match. Yeah. And what would be ideal here is if we had like some wrestling statistics team that looked at every house show and every TV taping and timed 
the amount of time that each wrestler spent in the ring. And then we would know, like, well, who's really spending the most time in the ring? And I think that would probably tell you even more about who's about to get injured. I mean, New Japan, I could tell you that because I have all the times for New Japan matches, but not right. how much time each individual person is in the ring. Right. Um, but it, it's intriguing to me to say what has happened because of the um, the brand split. And one thing that I will say is, in my mind, kind of better is that while WWE is running more shows, we're seeing less of people who are getting over that 200 match mark um, because they have two different brands that they can tour. So it's not necessarily the same guy going out over and over and over again. Whereas in 2015, you had several guys who are over 200 matches. You had uh, New Day, you had Roman Reigns, you had Dean Ambrose all doing 200 to 220 matches versus this year. The most number of matches anyone's probably going to do in WWE is probably about 175. Uh, and that's going to be Jinder Mahal. So uh, interesting there to say, you know, this is a guy who went from being a jobber to literally being not only the top guy of the year, but working the most in the year. Um, AJ Styles, Cesaro, Sheamus, um, Ambrose Corbin, like the list I gave before. I- interesting with Jinder, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, taking rookies and then putting you in with better guys and seeing how they improve. I'm curious, do you think Jinder really showed a massive amount of improvement this year, considering he was working with some of the best talent in WWE, AJ and Orton and Nakamura? I haven't watched Jinder's match quality that closely to to say. No, I'll I'll throw it out to the listeners then. Uh, Do you think you've seen a remarkable improvement? Do you think uh, Jinder Mahal might win most improved uh, for WWE this year or whether he's kind of flatlined? Or you know what Arn Anderson would say? I think there's a table for three with I, th- I think it's Rick and Tully and Arn, and uh, and Arn Anderson makes this argument about how well this is why wrestlers are getting injured so much. It's because they don't wrestle enough. They have these lighter schedules now, and they don't build up the calluses. Back because back in his day, they worked so much more, and that built up the calluses on their bodies, and they that prevented them from getting uh, getting injured, and that kept them in ring shape. I mean, I think uh, you could argue there's a lot of different things that were changing it uh i would i i actually think some of the reason that we have higher injury rates in the last couple years here compared to maybe the mid-2000s is that guys were using steroids as a healing uh mechanism and it helped them you know kind of keep together for a longer period until they literally fell apart so you would get those massive muscle tail tears or those neck injuries and that was really serious, but I think a lot of guys were able to work through sometimes um, some of the injuries they were getting uh, because they were you, you probably abusing a lot more painkillers and steroids. And I think to some degree that was also true in the 80s. Um, I think the style in the 80s, of course, was way, way different. Um, both the ring was different, but then also, you know, whether or not you're just taking an axe handle off the top versus you're actually, you know, doing a a, uh, a red arrow, there's a big difference there in, in kind of the, the – the whiplash that you're giving to your body right. and the number of bumps that guys are taking in matches. And, and there is something to be said about, you know, the, it's a totally different style and, you know, guys, it, it also, it, it attracts a different type of person is I that mean, the money and is and different. I, I love eighties wrestling, but a high spot in the eighties was like, I, I, I was at a seminar once where Roddy Piper was there and he, he referred to any, any back bump as a high spot. So like, and we don't talk about high spots that way today. So like just to give you an impression of, I think how the wrestling style has changed and what the fans expectations are and, and what the kinds of matches are that workers are putting together and, and 
what the expectation is of the audience. My, my point is that I think the, the style is so much harder now. This, I'm not saying it, yes, yes, they worked hard in the '80s too, and they bumped hard and they wrestled every night. And my God, and they they bled and they paid the price, but they're not doing high spots like people are doing high spots today. And it's not just that they're stupid and they choose to do it, but that there's a certain fan expectation because the expectations of the, of the fans has changed over time. I would also say that there's a difference between different areas of the world. You know, there was some Japanese styles that were pretty darn intense in the 80s. There was definitely a lot of lucha that was very different in the 80s. And so, you know, every every different part of the world, now that we've merged a lot of these styles, we, we've carried over elements that are good and bad. And uh, it, it's going to have a big effect. But, you know, we saw guys like Dynamite Kid run himself into the ground through the 80s. So it's it's hard to say that, you know, it wasn't intense and it didn't, you know, take a huge toll on a lot of guys. Yeah. Um, that Dynamite Kid was destroyed by the schedule and the the hard style that he chose to, to work because he felt that he had he had to work such a hard style because if he didn't. At his size, he would have been, you know, he wouldn't have uh, kept his job. I think that's that's his defense, and that's I think that's he says as much in his book. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's you know it it's a different mentality about what it was and the way that people would would manage their pain and manage their injuries. And so, in some ways, guys getting injured and leaving to get surgery could be seen as a very good sign because it's a sign that you are actually, you know, stopping yourself from completely degrading your body and and getting massive brain damage and concussions, you know. The the con- concussion protocol anyway. I mean the concussion protocol today is so different than it was yeah. back in the 80s too where you, you could make a very strong argument that we're going to see a very um that we might see a lower rate of of CTE type injuries on some guys into the next a generation from now, you know, 20, 30 years well, compared on to... On the other hand, though, a lot of the CTE research suggests that what makes what gives people CTE is not so much concussions, but the thing, subconcussive blows. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe... maybe I, I would still say we're probably better at treating major concussions than we were in the 80s. Yeah. I would say that we're not necessarily better at um, reducing the number of bumps that might lead to CTE. So that that's a fair point. Yeah. That that certain brain injuries are probably being given a lot more time and opportunity to heal, and, and, and that's and direct shots to the head, like chair shots to the head, are more taboo. In WWE, you still I, see I it throughout. And they, there are more taboo, but I mean, I was just watching TNA um, uh, Best of 2018 and watching Alberto Del Rio uh, wallop. The 17 wallop. I think it was Eli Drake with a chair and just break it, or maybe it was Johnny Mundo. Um, just break it on top of his head. And, you know, you still see it in Mexico. You still see it in New Japan. You still see it in, in you know, death matches all over the, the world. So there's something to be said that, um, you know, we're not necessarily at that, that tipping point for modern wrestling changing completely. But I do think that we are seeing um, at least the, the, the leader, you know, the largest company in the world, at least take a stronger stance on it. And much like blood, uh, we're, we're probably seeing a change in the way that fans expect things yeah. that we're not necessarily. I mean, I would still argue that Shane McMahon's bumping off the cage and Vince McMahon uh, taking direct headbutts is, you know, huge, huge uh, juxtaposition of priorities here when you're allowing basically the McMahon family to to do whatever the hell they want. But you're telling the wrestlers that you care about them and their bodies. Yeah. Well, bravado is ultimately more important than safety to them, but their own personal bravado but i i, I feel like I, I noticed this on the indies that i'm around uh 
that when WWE does something, everybody copies it. And even if that's things about safety, like I don't, I can't, I'm sure it's happened, but I can't think of a lot of unprotected chair shots on shows that I've been on lately. No, I think you're right on that, that, that guys are, you know, guys are getting smarter. I mean, who would be stupid enough to gig in the middle of like a farmer street battle or something like that? Plenty of people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so we, we were talking here about how many matches the New Japan guys got. And I was like, well, they probably did, you know, between 120, 140 matches. Uh, you know, Naito did 144. I think Evil might have done like 147 or 150. Um, WWE guys closer to 170. Is Evil the Iron Man for New Japan then? I think Evil ended up being the Iron Man for New Japan. You can check for sure in the uh, the New Japan uh, Voices of Wrestling ebook that will be coming out shortly after the new year uh, with uh, executive editors Joe Lanza, Rich Kreish, and uh, all the other contributors. I uh, threw a lot of data at them, and hopefully they've been able to translate it into some stats. So if you find mistakes on the stats, it's my fault. You should make a tweet saying that uh, you know Evil or whoever whoever it really is is the <laughs> New Japan Iron Man, and see if they'll I don't know retweet you and, and credit you properly. Well. You know, so that was the whole joke here is that Jimmy Uso's Instagram referred to a a statement where it said somebody on Twitter said and then it literally verbatim used my quotes from Twitter. And then Naomi retweeted this this Instagram post and it was just ridiculous that someone I wasn't so annoyed that someone took my my facts and was repeating them. I wasn't even annoyed that they didn't credit me. I was annoyed that they took literally what I wrote in Twitter, which is always stilted language. Like it's it's never the way I would put it if I'm trying to give the 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 factoid out as a person. It's more the way I'm just kind of stream of consciousness trying to fit it into the character limit and and give all my 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 quotes. And they just literally took off my name and changed it to someone. And it was in, included the same awkward uh, like language where I was like, well, if you include FCW matches, it's even longer and so forth. But I was just so annoyed that like someone would take my tweet but not even bother to rewrite it into proper English. And that's what drove me up a wall. But yes, I, I am someone on Twitter now. And like I said, it got me another couple hundred followers. So uh, I can't well, be know, that angry. Jimmy, Us- Jimmy Uso, since he's the Iron Man, and he's at how many matches? 982 or something like that, right? Where is he? Where is he on here? Uh, 982 is what I had, and that was before SmackDown, so he might even be up to uh, an even higher number. So he's well over 500. So I think he deserves a 60-day break from house shows, and maybe during that time he can uh, take some journalism classes and learn how to correct people properly. I don't blame Jimmy Uso. I blame whoever it is that was sending him this these facts i don't i never blame the wrestlers the wrestlers just you know they they get bombarded with crap all the time through their social media and it's going to be very hard for them to wade through all that crap and find the find the facts that matter um but i i blame you know the copy and paste websites that that do it and that's why it matters that you when you pay people to do information and if you're welcome to use these facts or this data points i just ask that you credit someone or you source it because if i was reading this fact i wouldn't believe it the first thing i would have said is what about dolph ziggler and if you don't have a comeback to what about dolph ziggler then you shouldn't be reporting that fact was it reported picked up by websites all the time. Just just look up Jimmy Uso Harrington and you'll find like all these different sites that at least credited me. And my my favorite is always when I get credited on like Super Luchas because it's like, you know, uh, it's all in, in Spanish of like like los, los luchos expertito statisticio. I see. Yeah. So 
I, I enjoy that. But what I was trying to get at is, is yeah, no DQ.com, cage side seats. Oh yeah, it was everywhere. It was it was I was kind of surprised at at how many people picked up this one fact. And this was something I was talking to you on DM about is just like it's really hard for me to sometimes to understand why does something captivate people's attention and knowledge, but it's always those easily repeatable facts yeah, that don't necessarily require a lot mania. of explanation. Yeah. No, I as I told you, I think it's people want information that they can use in a, in a conversation that will be understood by the person they're talking to. And I think what I called it tent poles. I think people want, they want information that they can grab a hold of and that makes sense to them. And it confirms or denies some, some widely held belief. And by widely, I don't mean everybody agrees about it, but a, a, a section of people have some belief it's a conspiracy they enjoy too like they love the conspiracy know. that jimmy Uso's never been on a wrestlemania match and yet he's the iron man mm, yeah they, they like that that's yeah. meaty to them because it's not the guy you expect it's counterintuitive yeah yeah it's not John and so Cena. it's not roman reigns jimmy it's not gender <laughs> yeah that was funny some some people came to me and they're like isn't it john cena and i, I and you're just like I don't think you understand what you're arguing about if you think John Cena is the Iron Man for WWE. If you think the definition of Iron Man is showing up every year, then Undertaker is your Iron Man. If you think the definition of Iron Man is most matches in a year, then give it to Iron Sheik or give it to Rocky Johnson. One year, Rocky Johnson wrestled something like 360 matches uh, for WWF when you include like the fact that he would wrestle more than one match at a taping. Um you know, there, there's lots of guys that, that did tons and tons of matches at a time. But John Cena has been more and more sporadic over the last few years. Yeah. And so I would always expect more of a Cesaro or Sheamus or or something before I would expect a a, uh, a John Cena. But other people would say, well, is this excluding holidays? And, and it's just like, what do you think it is if it doesn't exclude holidays? Like, what is that question? Or the fact that I refer to it as Iron Man as two words. You know, some people were like, no, it's Iron Man. And and part of me was like, I, I'm using it as two words because I'm defining this made up term. It, you know, why 40 days? Why not 30 days? Why not 50 days? It could be whatever you want it to be. Um, I guess probably some people thinking of like the Cal Ripken sense of Iron Man, right? Where you have a, a defined schedule of 162 dates and you never miss one of them. That must be it. In fact, I think it was uh, Justin Basario in Sports Illustrated. Uh, on the website when he quoted my tweet. I think he specifically referenced Cal Ripken. And again, if you really asked me in an interview who is the Iron Man of WWE, I'd say Dolph Ziggler. I wouldn't say Jimmy Uso. I just was using a very specific definition of this sub-40 days. You know, I think Jimmy Uso has had a lot more days where he's gone higher to the limit than Dolph Ziggler has. So I just found that very, very comical. But but what I was trying to get at is is guys that wrestled more than the WWE guys or the New Japan guys for the year. And A, there's a lot of guys in Lucha. I'm positive there's a lot of, of Lucha stars in Mexico because they're able to do double shots and triple shots and work all the time. So I'm sure like a, a, a Christico, Mystico type guy is is doing a lot more matches in the year. But um, somebody brought up Pentagon Jr. And um, I thought Pentagon Jr. is just a fascinating guy because he's a guy that works both US, UK, and Mexico. Yeah. And there's not actually a great record that shows all three of those places in one place. Like if you go to cage match alone, you only get like what? 130 matches or something. 133. 
Yeah. And so what I did is I went to Cage Match and then I went to the Luca Witchy, Lu- Luca Wick- Wiki through the Cubs fan website and I found like the match list. And I, I cross referenced every time what where he was on a certain date and then excluded those. And I came up with like more than 175 matches for him when you take like the 100 plus he did in uh, Mexico plus the 75 that he did in the U.S. and Canada. And I know Rob Viper mentioned to me that uh, allegedly he didn't turn down any dates this year. Like if he could make the date, he he worked it. Um, and so that's an enormous amount of matches where he was probably killing it. Um, Is he working mostly El- tags in Mexico or a lot of singles? You know? uh, everything, you know, everything is, is I would say it's a lot of tags just because Mexico is a lot of tags in yeah. general. I guess what um, I'm asking is, is it more tags in Mexico than he's working in, say, the U.S. Indies or the U.K. Indies? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's that makes sense, because unless he's tagging with his brother, you know, a lot of times if you're going to bring over a star, you ask them to work at singles. Right. So a lot of the times when the New Japan guys come over and work, you know, another company, they're working singles because guys want to work at singles match and you want to sell that. Versus, you know, the reality is, yeah, most guys would probably rather work the tag and have a little bit more leeway. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, uh, how do you say his name? El El Ligero? El Ligero? Ligero? Ligero, yeah. Yes. Another UK guy, right? And yeah, uh, he if, if you ever try lot. to talk about who's worked the most matches in a in a year, and if you post this to Twitter, you will have someone yell at you immediately about El Ligero and how. I think he works at a, a ton of small shows on the UK as well as big shows, obviously as well. But he, uh, he cage match counts 158, and uh, and that's probably sh- well short because obviously cage match doesn't always catch smaller indie shows. Which, which just also makes the point here that you know most guys struggle to hit 52 weeks or 52 matches a year if you're an indie guy, right? Um, if you're not a name indie guy, if you're just like a, if you're a Brandon Thurston Howard level indie guy. Yeah. 52 matches in a year would be considered a good year, right? That would be a lot. I, I don't know if I've ever broken 50. I've been in the 40s. Yeah. yeah. And and you'll meet guys you'll meet guys that occasionally do 100 yeah. matches in a year, and that means they're working a lot. That means they're really good. Then you get a guy like Cody Rhodes. How many matches did Cody do this year? I don't know. Are you asking me to guess? Well, I'm asking you to look it up. Oh. All right. Let's see what Let's see what we got here. You can see we, we prepared and then we didn't prepare. That's right. No, no podcast is complete without uh, uh, live research on cagematch.de or .net or whatever it is. Matches. Or, or Wrestling Data. You know, I love WrestlingData.com because WrestlingData.com has this great feature where you can click on a guy and then you can go to years and it will do a, um, a little uh, – cross tab for you where it's years across the top or months across the top and years down the side and the number of matches that they worked and so it, it can be really useful if you're trying to just look up how many matches did a guy do in a year and then how much did they do per month i love using that well it looks like cody did about 117 matches according to cage match yeah and worked a whole lot of different feds i mean yeah. an impressive number of different companies between wcpw yeah, there could and be new japan and think, roh i think most of them are here because i would think most of the promotions that are gonna book cody Rhodes are on the cage match radar it's possible there are some missing though but yeah 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 but i just mean like a guy like cody did 120 just to give you an idea of you know yeah. you can work more than 100 matches a year if you're going to either own your own fed and you're running a whole lot if you're a super duper duper hot indie guy, you know, I wonder if the Young Bucks did more. 
Um, let's just see here. What did Nick Jackson do in the last year here? He definitely worked more New Japan shows than Cody would have. Yeah. So let me check. What do we got for Nick Jackson? He worked in 2017, according to Cage Match. Only 81 matches, actually, is what it says. So, again, I think there's certain guys that, you know, kind of price themselves out. Um, The reason um, Pentagon Jr. came up was because people kind of said he's a great example of a guy that's super in demand, working everywhere all the time, and yet, um, you know, is not turning down dates left and right and must still be affordable. I guess Keith Keith Lee would be the other guy. I'd be kind of curious to see how many matches he did because he's really exploded his, uh, um, you know – his exposure this year um and just keith lee alone looks like he worked 114 matches this year and i'm sure there's some missing for keith lee yeah but i mean that's that's about the limit for most indie guys because most indie guys the best you can do is a double shot weekend and what what makes it you know or you do like a triple shot or quadruple shot on wrestlemania weekend where you can work all the different you know a joey janela type thing where you're going to work lots and lots of different shows yeah. Um, I think a lot of guys but, on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there's there's occasionally some Thursday shows, which is why it's so nice for, you know, guys that are are on you know WWE or on New Japan is because they can run those other dates and they'll be able to draw well enough. And then, of course, I'm sure there's some DDT guys and whatnot. DDT is one of the companies that runs absolutely the most shows of anything in in uh, w, in uh, Japan. I always find Uh same with Big Japan. Big Japan runs a heck of a lot of shows. Um, yeah, Joey Janela did about 108 matches last year, it looks like. Uh, so th- there's a lot of guys that, that are, are breaking that 100 mark. The most I ever uh, did is I think I did maybe 55 improv shows in a year. Oh. So, you know, that's – that's It's more than yeah, one week. Under- yeah, yeah. And, and that's because I'll, I'll – you know, I do corporate gigs or I'll do a double shot where I would do a Friday, Saturday um, – a lot. So for me, if I can do 50 shows in a year, that's a good year. But that I have to hustle to do that. That usually means I'm I'm really, really pushing, you know, to find places to get booked you're, to do that. You got to got to upgrade your steroids and painkiller dosages, right? Yeah, I got to watch, uh, you know, got to got to mainline some kids in the hall or something. Yeah. But uh, who's lying? Um, but yeah, it's it's. It says a lot that if you can break 100, you're doing really well for yourself. And so for a guy to be up at 175 or something. Now, that said, Mexico is a completely different question. You know, there are guys that can work more than 100 without a problem in Mexico. There's lots of guys that do it. Um, it's just not good pay, right? And uh, uh, it's, it's always going to be uh, an interesting example for people. Um so we have a lot of different uh, uh, stats here just about, you know, how many singles that people do. And, and there is probably something to be said that one of the things that wears you down faster is the more singles matches. So I'd be really curious to see, you know, does Kofi Kingston get over 1,400 matches because he is basically doing tags a lot of that time versus someone like Dolph, who probably actually did do mostly singles matches there. You know, I can't think of big tag teams with Dolph that he's done really heavily. So. You know, there, there's going to be guys that are also just built for it and going to do a lot better than uh, other people that are just falling apart left and right. Let's talk. Uh, what's the latest on Wrestle Kingdom? Wrestle Kingdom ticket sales have hit 30,000, according to New Japan itself. And uh, they say they're going to open more seating, which they will make available on the day of the show. So that sounds like they're. They're opening a s- certain sections uh, with with maybe limited view of the stage. 
it sounds like they're they're uh, going to open certain sections for walk up sales. I guess. So what, what did we predict? For, I, I predicted thirty four thousand, right? Oh my goodness! I'm going back to our document oh. where you you were smart enough to write down all our predictions, so we don't have to have, actually listen yeah. to the show a second time. There's going to be accountability. Um, there's, some accountability. We're going to do a scoreboard here. See who got the most right. You predicted one million six hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, that seems modest. No, you predicted that was your 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 sub count number. Um, <laughs> you predicted thirty two thousand. I predicted thirty two thousand and one. Oh, oh, it's going to be more than that. <laughs> yeah, it's sounding very, very positive right now. So um, who do you credit for that? Do you, do you credit the Jericho of the world? Do you credit the, uh, the Nido of the world? Do you credit uh, both? Uh, the brand is the draw, right? Um, no, I think you give, you give everybody credit for this. That all, all those, those four main players, I think you give credit for it. I don't know. It's hard to, for me, not living in Japan, to get a grasp of how important Jericho is to this. I'm sure he's important to some extent, and I'm sure he's motivating more people who are traveling in from other countries to go to the show. Um, but no, I, I, on the other hand, though, New Japan has gotten on its own more popular this year. Uh, and that a lot of that credit has to go to, most of all, Okada. And uh, I don't know, Omega and Naito. It's hard to say who, who gets more credit there, but I think, yeah, Okada, maybe maybe the most, at least within Japan, and then uh, Omega and Naito c- comparable. I know I know Naito's selling a lot of merch, so maybe maybe Naito edges him out, but Kenny Omega has a value as an international uh, talent. He has a lot of international appeal, obviously, because he, he is a North American guy who speaks English. So, yeah. When I was at my uh, improv show last night, uh, there was someone there in a bone sh- soldier Bullet Club sweatshirt. So Ooh. I will did you say that her to listen to WrestleNomics Radio. I did not pester her, her. to listen to WrestleNomics Radio. I thought it would be. Uh, it, I, I do improv at this this the, like I say this crazy mini golf excitement place, yeah. and um, especially after nine when it's adults only, it is a young people's club. So it's a lot of people in their twenties and thirties, and actually there there are older forties and fifties hanging out there. Um, but it is at times when I feel all of my 37 years or in two weeks, I'll be 37, um, compared to some of these people here where, you know, they're, they're, you know, 23 years old and I'm 37 and you you can feel kind of awkward when I come up to you out of the blue and just be like your sweatshirt. (laughs) So I, I decided to just let this one go. I was having a, uh, a kind of a rough day because I had crashed my car on the way to the show. You crashed your car? Just a little bit. I was on. I was. We have a ramp in this uh, building, and so it's a. It's been really cold in Minnesota. I mean, when I when I joked last week it was going to be negative one, I was wrong. It was negative ten. So it was super duper cold all week. And um, what happened is there's a, a ramp to go into the parking garage, which is nice. Um, but it's a it's a one way ramp. So I mean, you can only have one car on this ramp. There's not like enough room for entering and exiting at the same time. And this this facility has a tiny parking lot, and it's hard to describe like how weird this is. Is um, imagine a fence? You've probably seen one before. Yeah. And then you got a building right next to the fence, and literally the distance between the building and the fence is the width of a car. Okay. Mm-hmm. So to get into this thing, you have to basically 
make a U-turn if you're coming the other direction and barely miss hitting this building and get next to this fence and then right starting at the fence is parking. So there's cars parked everywhere here. So there's barely any room between these two cars on either side to even drive your car. On top of that, there's a food truck. So the food truck blocks half of the lane here. So now you can't even get enough cars to go one in each direction. Then next to it is a giant pillar, like a concrete pillar. So you can't even turn around. Like there's not enough room to turn around. All there is is a ramp. And because this place is so hard to get to and because there's so many hipsters going, there's a lot of (laughs) Ubers and Lyfts that are always coming through to like pick people up and drop them off. So there's always craziness going on at this little intersection here because there's the food truck blocking half of it. There's there's cars. There's a fence. It's really hard to get into. And then there's this ramp. And, of course, there's no, like, ramp full sign. So what happened is I think this Uber driver went down the ramp. I went down the ramp after him, and I couldn't stop. Like, I was stuck on ice. And so even though I was I was pounding on my brakes, nothing was happening. It was like a downhill ramp. And I was ramp. still sliding. Yeah, it was a downhill ramp. And I'm honking the horn, and the guy doesn't move. And oh. so I just plowed right into him. Oh, so I, I broke the, my front grill on oh, my car, no. kind of like all the plastic body on my, my uh, Buick. But it, it's not bad, bad, but it's it's not good. Uh, so I'm going to have to get that fixed. So I had I had a car accident right before that, and then I still had to you know, go through all the rigmarole. There's still nowhere to park in the ramp, had to leave the ramp, park next door, run into the building. It was like negative 10. It was so cold. And so it was just a bad time. So I did not feel like bothering the girl about the bone soldier. Uh, sweatshirt. Did you call your insurance uh, company? Not yet. I'm, that'll be today, probably after we're done with the the I, Russell Olympics radio. I ran over a porcupine. Have you ever told you that story? No. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Where were you? There was porcupines. Yeah. This, this is this is before WrestleNomics, before I was doing WrestleNomics. So um, I had a booking in uh, in Massachusetts for New England Championship Wrestling in um, somewhere near Boston. This is Sheldon Goldberg's promotion. And uh, he, he does this uh, tournament every year. So he, Isn't that where uh, Kenny, Kenny Dykstra started? Could be. Um, so I, I got booked for that. And uh, so I drove to his show. So actually I had an older car. I had like a Chrysler Sebring, like a 2002 Chrysler Sebring. It like used to be my dad's. And it was like, you know, older car. And it was starting to get on its last legs. And I think I needed to replace something in it that cost more than the value of the car. So like it was... And from a maintenance sense, it was, it was kind of totaled. So I was like, okay, I got to take this, you know, drive all the way across the state pretty soon. So I better get a new car, which I need anyway. So I kind of like got a new car, maybe like a month earlier than I would have. But anyway, so I got a, a new car, new to me, like a year old. This is the car I have now. It's like 2014 uh, Toyota Yaris. And uh, so I got the car, bought the car. And uh, so then like five days later, I, I drive to the show. And I drive to the show and everything's, you know, I. I go across New York State and I get into Massachusetts and I, and I get there and I do the show and it's good and everything. But actually, we're, you work like a, a first round set of singles matches. You know, so there's like eight guys in first round matches and then then there's four winners from that that go into a 45 minute Iron Man match. So I did that and it was you know it was good. It was good. Um, and I drove home. I was thinking, well, maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna rest. I don't know. It's, it's a long drive and it's already like 11:30 midnight, but. Uh, I'm like, no, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stick it out and drive all the way home. So I'm driving. I'm still in Massachusetts at this point, and I'm, I'm driving on the. It would probably be the Interstate 90. Still in Massachusetts, and I'm driving along, and I see something in, in the, uh, in the road. By the time I see it, though, it's pretty close to me. I figured it's like a, it looks like a brown paper bag or something. So I'm like, well, 
you know, I don't have enough time to like swerve out of the way here. This is all, you know, thought that I was having within about a half a second. So I don't have enough time to swerve out of the way here. I'll just, you know, it's probably just a paper bag or something. I'll just go over it. So I go over this object and then my car, like it feels like I was going over a hill. Like my car lifted up in the air a few inches, it felt like, and then went back down. I was like, wow, what was that? I think everything's okay. I think everything's going to be okay. I just keep on driving. I think everything's going to be okay. It'll be, it'll be fine. And then like all of a sudden lights start lighting up on my dashboard. And I'm like, oh no. So I pull off to the side, off to this rest stop, and like my car is smoking. You know, I lift the hood up, it's smoking. And uh, I, didn't even, I didn't even know what I ran over. I, I got a, you know, I called the insurance company and they, I don't know, somehow or another, I got a tow truck to come out at like two in the morning or something like that. And, uh, the, you know, this tow truck guy looks at the car, looks at the front of my car and, uh, it's all like, you know, split in the middle and everything. He's like, oh, there's quills on here. I ran over a porcupine. <laughs> I still have one of the quills. It's a, it's a pin to my corkboard at work. So yeah, I, I ran over an entire porcupine. And five days after I got this car and uh, I had to leave it, this was such an ordeal. I had to leave the car. It wasn't drivable. Like I couldn't start it again because the porcupine had like cut through the starter or something. All sorts of stuff was damaged. Uh, it needed mechanical work first and it also needed body work, but like it would have been more of an ordeal to make a long story short. I got the, I got the mechanical work done in Massachusetts. So I like rented a car and then drove home back to Buffalo from Massachusetts and like let my car sit there until somebody, you know, like the insurance appraiser had to look at it and then finally they fixed it. And then I had to drive all the way back to some random town in Massachusetts to pick up my car, then drive it back to Buffalo and have the collision work done, like the body work done. It was like the, the cost of the damage was almost as much as I paid for the car. So we were getting pretty close. I almost totaled my car five days after having it. What a story. Wow. I, I, my Aztec had to go away. I think it was last year. And uh, one of the reasons was because I I blew the blew like the starter the the oh god what was it I blew like the transmission or something in the in there and so every time I turned on the car the engine would overheat within a minute so I could drive it a total of six hundred feet each time so I, I had to get it home one time from from a place in the course of like thirty different you know me turning it on moving it six hundred feet really? and stopping and so I had to give it up but so I'm very well familiar with the idea of, of fixing a car that is worth far less than the car and uh, it, with my Aztec every time I got the brakes done or the the tires uh, it was well w- more than the car was worth so yeah this is uh, going to be my first First big problem with this car, so we'll see where it goes. But yeah, I uh, was not the best best start of a day. So luckily the show went well, but uh, I was not in in the mood to talk Bone Soldier sweatshirts with everyone. And now you've you've destroyed our chances of getting an actual WWF World Wildlife Fund uh, sponsorship on this show. It was an accident, though. Yeah, I feel bad about it. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a vegan, if that helps. You you're a vegan? Yeah. Jeez, oh gosh, folks, we got a lot to we got a lot to fix with this guy. All right, um, I you. found Titan Sports Incorporated gross income statements from 1984 through 1990. Um, this was fascinating to me because I found it in the middle of a trademark filing, um, and what it was is I was looking at. I was looking at at different trademarks where WWE was opposing the trademarks or where someone opposed WWE's trademark. And I started going down the hole of this WWF superstars and this guy named Albert Patterson. I've talked about this before. He has sued WWE 
WWF. He sued WWE. He sued TNA. He sued WCW. He sued pretty much everyone under the sun for the use of the phrase superstars of wrestling in any way, because um, years and years ago, he sort of won or a company he was associated with or a company that he later took over um, ran some events and used the name and got it trademarked and then basically went off, went after WWF and they, they went back and forth and back and forth and had a trial at one point in the nineties and, and we're trying to figure out damages. And as part of this, for this, this trademark infringement where basically they no longer have claim to the word superstars. They actually, they never had claimed to the word superstars and they had basically an agreement between them and, and WWF about what they had to do to stay in the right. Um, at some point there was why a, if you see some WF footage that, would have like the superstars of wrestling banner over the ring and it's blurred out. That's why, because of this legal issue, correct? Yes. Yeah. And that it's just basically this annoyance that they've had with him. And, um, what, what I discovered though, was a, uh, trademark infringement expert filing that was in here. It's called damage determination report for United wrestling association, Inc with UWA, which was in this case, this, the company that later became Albert Patterson's WWA versus Titan sports incorporated a trademark infringement case submitted by LSG Godwin in November 19th, 1992. And, um, basically it's, it's them trying to figure out what they would say is the royalties that they would have had to pay for the name superstars. And um, when you get these kind of expert reports, um, you know, sometimes it's done by both a there, – there's a version that's done by a plaintiff and there's a version that's done by the uh, the defendant. So it's not to say that this was the answer, but it's a way that they would determine. And so they got all this data from uh, Titan, including U.S. tax returns for the year 1984, 85, 86, 87, 88, 89, accountant paperwork for the years 84 through 89, license agreements for Titan – advertisements, and then Wisconsin state income taxes because this was a Wisconsin uh, lawsuit. And uh, what was interesting is it says right on there, here's what the dollars earned by WWF were, Titan Sports, uh, for the gross income per the U.S. tax return from 1984 through 1990. And so it shows in 1984 they did $29.5 million. In 1985 they did $63 million. In 1986, they did $77 million. 1987, they did $85 million. 1988, they did $112 million, actually 113. 1989, they did $137.5 million. 1990, it says that they did $138 million. And it, it does note here that uh, the 138 number might, in fact, be um, from a slightly different source. But uh, essentially, it was from a, a filing that WWF Titan Sports had done at the time. So, what do you, interesting. This is April to March. Well, that's what what I don't. I'm not clear on is it is the U.S. tax return. So I actually think it's probably you know it wouldn't make sense in my mind that they would be paying the taxes for the next year in that year. Mm-hmm. So I I actually think it's a calendar year. Okay. One. Which is why if we look at some of the other filings that that Titan Sports has done, like the Ohio State one, it's slightly different sales numbers because in those, I'm pretty sure they were allowed to use the actual uh, fiscal year that WWF used, which, like you say, was a May to April one um, versus it's, here. It's I think May to April, might... not, not, not April to March, as I said earlier. Um, uh, I thought it was May to April, uh, to be honest. It doesn't really matter. Okay. Yeah, I always thought it was post WrestleMania, and then this way WrestleMania was always done by April, so you yeah. you would always be getting it in there. Yeah, that's true. Um, 
So the other part of this is that this also includes something called the variable direct cost percentage and, and the general administrative cost percentage and how much that is and for each year. And then the inverse of that, I'm being told by my accounting professors, is that that's the operating income. So that's another number that we sometimes see on WWF filings. So uh, just to put it in perspective, 99% of the revenue of the gross income in 1984 was variable and, and general administrative cost. 86 and 85, 83 and 80, uh, 86, uh, 92 and a half, 87, 92.3, 88, 90, uh, 87 in 89. So if you do the math there, if you multiply that gross revenue times the um, the percentage there, you see that operating income in 84 was only $300,000. So while they made $30 million, they only had $300,000 of operating income. So not a lot of profit. Um, 85, they had probably about $9 million out of a $63 million gross income. 86, they had about $13 million out of maybe $78, $77 million of, of income. 87, they actually went down to only about $6 million of operating income based on $85 million. Uh, 88, they only had $9 million of, of operating income out of 112. And uh, 89, they probably had about $18 million on 140, 138 million of income. So it's intriguing that in 85, they had $63 million of gross income. 88, they had $113 million of gross income. So they doubled it, yet their operating income was the same. Mm. So if you're ever wondering about, you know, this is a good example of the difference between building your revenue up and building your actual, you know, profits and your other money up, which is they spent a lot of money in that effort for them to grow. So they doubled between 84 and 85, uh, and their operating income went way up that year. But after that, they had pretty high what you would probably call fixed costs of uh, against this business here. So it, it was really intriguing to me to see all this kind of really financial stuff about WWF that was coming from their own records and being done in a report here. So I don't think this has worked in the slightest. Um, you know, these would be the sort of numbers that I would say are probably the most credible numbers you can have because they were introduced in a lawsuit. Uh, Dave Meltzer made a point on the the um, observer board when I posted – actually, someone else posted my tweet about this. And Dave said something that in the uh, steroid trial in the 90s um, – one of the lawyers or accountant, I think the CFO testified that they had never made more than $6 million of profit in any given year. And again, it's the difference between profit, operating income, OBITDA, all the different, all the different definitions you can use. But it just says something that, you know, they were making, yes, $100 million plus dollars, and yet they were still not super duper profitable. They are far more profitable now. They were far more profitable 10 years ago. So if it's um, like for 89, for example, what's that for a operating income margin? I'm doing the math right now. That's um, a 15%. Yeah. So they were somewhere between, well, you know, 10% and 15% a lot of these well, years. But I'm, I'm looking at the trending schedules and for 2015, it's a 6% operating income margin. For 2016, 8% operating income margin. Yep. So the percentage, I think, is very similar. I would guess oh, the dollars, though. The percentage is half. Like 89 is at 15%. And oh, okay. last two years, but then, six and eight. But what what is the dollar amount? What is the dollar operating income for WWE today? For 2016, total operating income was $55.7 million. Yeah. So almost triple yeah. what it was, um, 89. So I, it's just the difference there between, you know, the more they grow their revenue, they don't necessarily grow their, their actual profit percentage. And in fact, you know, when you look at their OBITA, it, it's actually comparable to pre-network OBITA, which, you know, would blow people's minds. But the fact is they weren't 
unprofitable for many years there. In fact, launching the network made them unprofitable um, and they had to bounce back out of it. And of course, it's a structurally different business. It's a business that, you know, is not going to be knocked out of business by home entertainment revenue. It's a business that's going to be bolstered by a new TV rights contract, but it's not the same, um, you know, business that they were in 10 years ago in a lot of ways. When you look at where the growth is coming from, it's coming from network it's coming from TV. Those are the two biggest things. And the number three biggest thing is live events, which we'll talk about. Yeah. Um, so uh, just I, I found this kind of thing. This to me is far more fascinating than whether Jimmy Uso is, quote unquote, the Iron Man. But yes, uh, people are not as excited by financial accounting statistics of the 1980s Titan sports as I hoped. Yeah, but if I, I go up to my coworkers and I tell my coworkers about, hey, did you did you see the new uh, paperwork that just came out about WB's operating income from 1989? That they're not as interested in stuff like that than if, like, Jimmy Uso is the Iron Man. <laughs> so, uh, you know, in fact, I was just looking here at what was the average number of days uh, off for guys you know, or the average number of max days off for a guy in a year. And, you know, where do people land? And Dolph Ziggler does beat everybody at 19.4 over the last seven years here compared even to Jimmy Uso, who's like at 21 days. But, you know, there's there's some other people here who are, are not getting a lot of times off for sure. Um, you know, uh, Carl Anderson's only at 14, though he's only been here for two years. Uh, but uh, of people that have been around a lot more, you know, most people are who are interesting are sitting in that that upper range. Dean Ambrose with average was twenty six point nine. So what you're going to do? Um, some other facts is just I, I did a little bit of digging in the live events numbers and I was finally able to understand a whole lot better why they're excluding NXT revenue. (laughs) Um, NXT revenue is really interesting because if you don't exclude it, your revenue per show really is bad because they start running so many more NXT events in the last few years here. You know, 2015, they did 120, 2016, they did 189. Um, The last four quarters, the three quarters of this year and the last quarter of last year, they did 185. And your amount of revenue that you've generated from NXT was, you know, three and a half million in 2015, seven million in 2016. Um, The last four quarters was eight million. Uh, But if you look at the number of non NXT shows that they've run, they were they were sitting pretty much at three hundred and ten to three hundred and twenty between 2011 and 2014. Then it started to go up. 2015, they did 329. 2016, they did 344. The last four quarters here, they've done 386 events, live events. And um, I'm taking these off of um, WWE schedules. I'm not even like doing cage match stats or anything. So this should very closely mirror what the um, financial schedules say. What intrigues me is you can kind of start looking at what, 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 is you, the, what do you mean by WWE schedule? So I took it off of their 10Q filings and their 8K filings okay. and their annual their filings and the trending. Events. Okay. Yeah. Because what gets funny is, you know, what do you do with an access event? What do you do yeah. with um, a double TV taping, you know, where they might tape SmackDown and Raw on the same day? Is that two live events? Is that one live event? What do you do um, when they one. do a – I think they count it as one. Exactly. But cage match might count it as four yeah. because they do a main event, a SmackDown, a Raw – a superstars and you know and you you just have to do a lot of manipulation to get that right and as great as cage match is every year when i reconcile it with ww uh, with with wrestling observer results there's always some weekend where they only have the raw tour and they forget the smackdown tour or something like that right so 
your, your best bet is to actually use the WWE filing. Same with the when they do an on sale beach party for free. You know, do you call that an event or not? Um, so when I looked at the revenue per non NXT event over the years here, it was about 331,000 in 2011, 339 in 2012, 352 in 2013, 347 in 2014. Then in the last few years here, it's really gone up. 2015 was 369. 2016 was almost $400,000 in event. And then the last four quarters is 381. Now, when you look at this on a quarterly basis, what you'd really see is it's like 300, 500, 300, 300, because it's one quarter, the WrestleMania quarter that just shoots way, way, way up because of how many people and how much they spend on WrestleMania. So the real the best way to look at this would actually be excluding WrestleMania. But I, I just didn't get time to do that. But what's kind of blown me away is the fact that they've gone from making 330 to $350,000 in event to making closer to 380 to $400,000 in event. How do you do that? You raise your ticket prices. So in the in the uh, and, and I would guess by the time you include Q4 2017 with this holiday tour that always does well, you've probably got higher ticket prices there this year versus the holiday tour last year. So you're including Q4 2016, so that would be last year's holiday tour, which I'm guessing yep. would be slightly lower ticket prices than this year. So and the point is that that number 381 could be even higher for the entire year of 2017. Maybe, maybe. And we'll get to why I'm I'm hedging myself on that one mm-hmm. is that um, ticket price, when I look at just your average total ticket price revenue over people per attended show. So I'm, I also took into account all of the ticket prices they tell you for North America and international and all that data, but just doing the straight math myself. And so this is going to include travel packages as if they were people. Mm-hmm. So that's important to mention as well. Um, but your average per person amount that they generated was a little under $54 in 2011. Then it went up to about $58 between 2012, 2013, 2014. It was $59 in 2015. And then we rocketed up to $65 in 2016. And the last four quarters has been $66. So because 2016 and 2017 seem to have very similar average ticket price of about $66, which might not sound like a lot, but that's 10% higher. It, it really seems to be that, yes, ticket prices went up by about 10% over the last two years. Meanwhile, attendance is falling. Attendance used to be – it always hovers around 6,000, but it was 6,150, 2011, 5,900, 6,000, 6,000. Then 2015, you get 6,200. 2016, you get 6,100. The last four quarters here have only been 5,800. So while I agree with you that they probably raised their ticket prices more this year than last year – I think attendance is down enough that it might even out for that event value. You think attendance will even be down for this holiday tour? Mm, I think there's a possibility they that they'll average. Didn't they sell Chicago at least on Monday? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I think they'll do really great. But I just yeah. mean they averaged 6,100 last year. Yeah. And this year for the last four quarters, including a pretty good holiday tour last year, they only averaged 5,700. I don't think they can do well enough to to get their average back up to 6,000, let alone 6,100 per show for the whole year, just with one good week of tours. Mm -hmm. So overall, WWE gets about $5 more per head. Their their revenue per show is up 10%. And most importantly, they're just running more shows. You know, they they went from 344 shows last year to 386 in the last four quarters. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're closing in on 400 shows a year on just non-NXT. 
What do you think accounts for this difference of $5 between 2015 and 2016? Is it just a matter of we know we know that there were the, the ticket, what do you call them, the, the secondary market ticket websites? We're, we're getting a lot of value off of resale, reselling tickets, and we've just decided to raise them on our own. Is that it? I think that's a lot of it is that upper price tickets have continued to rise, and so it's that mid-tier that ne- isn't necessarily selling out so well. I think um, – you when you run more events, you have more opportunities to sell ringside seats, right? So it, the other difference is that I can resell a ringside seat at a super high price 386 times this year as opposed to 344. Yeah. So even if I'm getting less people, I'm selling more of those high price tickets. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing is that um, this includes uh, the 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 travel packages as part of live event revenue. Overall, I, I think I did include that as part of my entire calculation. I could exclude it just mm-hmm. to look at it, but I do think they're also making a little bit money off more money off travel packages each year. Um, I would have to pull up my my spreadsheet here, but I think it's you know at least a million dollars more they made this year on travel packages compared to a year ago. But travel packages existed throughout this timeline. You're looking at 2011 to the present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I just mean they're they're improving their revenue that they yeah. generate from travel packages. They're doing it for more shows. They're being able, you know, you're able now to do an NXT travel package right. as part of your SummerSlam weekend. So that's more money you can generate with that. Um and and ultimately, it's working in their favor that they are generating more attendance overall. So they're at 2.22 million for the last four quarters compared to 2.1 million for last year. 2.05 the year before that and 1.93 the year before that. So they haven't reached that tipping point, even though attendance is down, that attendance is um, kind of the curve is inverted, which is good for them because y- you need to make sure that you don't get to a point where even though you're running more and more shows, you actually have less and less people coming because every single show, every head coming to those shows is an opportunity to sell venue merchandise and is an opportunity to upgrade them to a network subscription and is an op- opportunity to do a lot of, you know, create new fans. And so I, I think it's very important to them that they reach more and more people every year if they want to continue to say they're growing their brand. Because mm-hmm. we talk a lot about, you know, it is the hardcores and I agree it is the hardcores, but if you're running 386 shows a year, it's important too to say, are they going to the same markets over and over again? Or are they still reaching more and more markets? And I still feel like right now I'd have to do kind of the actual um, you know, spreadsheet to look at it. But I still feel like they're actually going to more and more places rather than just going to Chicago one more time a year or New York one more time a year. Yeah, that, that is something we've never really looked at is like count up the number of different towns that they visit and compare it to multiple years. Yeah, so that that will be an opportunity, and and NXT again begins to, um, you know, and what will be now a two hundred five live tour next year, yeah. also begins to play with that that dynamic to say, well, there's places in the United States that it doesn't make sense to run a WWE tour to, but it might make sense to run an NXT tour to, and so NXT goes to Fargo, but maybe WWE doesn't go to Fargo because it just makes more sense, or Rhode Island in this case, um, because it it just makes more sense to to work it that way, so. I think it's really intriguing, but obviously their OBITA is being driven by network gains and TV gains. Next up is live events, but that is like one quarter the growth of what network or TV is growing at. 
And so, yeah, running more events is really valuable for them. And I think that's an underreported story for WWE is that they are they are doing a volume maximization model right now. They are allowing themselves to drop on average attendance per show just so they can get more and more revenue per show and and being able to sell more, you know, reach more people. But you're getting close to that inflection point, in my opinion. Yeah. And of course, you need you need to have rosters that aren't, you know, guys that aren't Iron Men, right? There's only so many times that you can do it. So what's good to see is that they were able to do that this year. And the most anybody had to work was 170 shows. Now, 170 shows is a lot of days. That means every other day you're wrestling. You know, that's a lot on on a wear and tear on guys. But if you're at 200 matches a year and you're doing that to everybody, there's no way I think you can live up there. I think you have to keep it somewhere between 150 and 170 uh, for, for people. And if I even look at it, I wonder what the average, you know, wrestler is doing these days. Um, let me just take the top, let's say what, 60 people in WWE top 60 people, including NXT stars. Uh, they averaged 130 matches. Hmm. And, and that's also important to say is we did 185 NXT events this year. A guy like Killian Dane wrestled 116 matches this year. And that includes so, the floor loop, obviously. Yeah, but I just mean like yeah. some of these NXT guys are actually getting a lot of wear and tear on their oh, yeah. body. You know, 100, 100 plus matches a year on NXT, that's a brand. You know, mm-hmm. that that's comparable to what New Japan is doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously not with New Japan crowds and New Japan work rate, but uh, I, I do think it's important to note that, you know, some of these NXT guys are really getting a lot of experience. But it's only that top level. And you could even argue that the guys that need it the most are not getting that experience. So if I look at a Tino, you know, a Sabatelli, uh, a guy who, you know, comes in kind of cold to WWE, he's at 81 matches for this year. Um, yeah. Mike Canellis is only at 41 matches this year with all his, uh, issues that have been going on. Uh, you know who had the most TV matches this year? Seth Rollins. Tony Nice. Tony Nice. Okay. Yeah, because uh because of the 205 he would be on Raw, he would wow. be on 205, he'd be on Superstars, I think sometimes. When did 205 yeah. Live launch? At the beginning of the year? I think it did, right? In January? Let's look here. I don't remember the exact date, do you? First episode was in November. Yeah, so it had the yeah, entire so year. The entire year. But yeah, mm-hmm. that was that was my fun little fact oid of the year that a couple people picked up on was was that Tony Nese somehow had more televised matches this year than anyone else, mm-hmm. which goes to say there's a big difference between being on television a lot and being a calling 205 live television and b, um, you know, being a star, being in the top. Yeah. Uh, so um, one thing that was intriguing for me was uh, uh, you talk about the 27 awards uh, do you, did you see the big news about the awards this year? Is he actually going to change the schedule? Are you talking the about the Observer news, Awards? No, I'm talking about the Observer Rewards. It's exactly right that he is now finally agreed really? that we will say the awards cover the period from December 1st, 2016 through December 30th, 2017. So if you do a great match on December 31st, I guess you're screwed. Um, we're going to start... 2018 covering it as the calendar year which means the results won't be up until later than most awards keep in mind voting that that december 2016 counts for this year Hmm. so So, are we having a 13 month year then or or? we are having a 13 month year and you know i will give a lot of credit to the voices of wrestling guys um as one of the people that were really advocating that 
we're just saying all Dave has to do is do one 13-month year, yeah. and then we can get onto a calendar year. And we are no longer in a world where you have to pretend that it takes so long to watch matches that we have to stop it a month early because we got to get the tape sent over from Japan. We are in a world where pretty much a good match is visible within three days at most, unless it's in Mexico, um, you know, and hidden in some corner I, of the I world. Guess things like progress are taking, you know, like they take about a week to put them up or something like that. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. even still, we could see Twitter, we could see other things like we, the, the knowledge is out there. It's not a secret anymore. And, you know, if you if you have such a killer match, a lot of companies will go out of their way to make sure that you can find it and see it uh, and and monetize that. Yeah. So I sent him an email I, I, and I gave him my um, I guess this is my 2015 ballot. So I sent this in January 2016, suggesting that I suggest it's time to count 2016 as a 13 month year and use a standard calendar year, yada, yada, yada. He said, to do so with how long it takes ballots to come in and be counted would mean the awards issue would have to come out in late February, which is too late. So he said that, but then remember what happened on the awards issue last year? I don't recall. Uh, see, this this is what happens when you're obsessive about this kind of facts. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure he did not uh, get out the awards issue until mid-February last year. Maybe March. Let's look. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it was – it was really late last year, and so I think that might have also humbled him a little bit about his excuse was more that he wasn't able to to tally everything and get it together than it was that you know it took forever for people to actually see the awards. Let me see here. Where's my awards issue? Um, Why am I struggling to find this? And there's probably – some sort of web application that they, they could find that they'd be able to give their subscribers the ability to to vote and not vote twice. I guess he got his awards issue out for 2016 in January mm-hmm. of January 25th. Mm-hmm. I just realized we're talking 2017, so I need to go to the right year. Mm-hmm. Which goes to show you how how excellent I am at this. Um, but I feel like 2017 it was really bad. In terms of we were waiting forever to see kind of some of these results. What a fun long pause. Might have to edit this part. There'll there'll be music playing in the background maybe. (laughs) Let's see. We want January or March. This is intolerable. Hmm. We'll play Jeopardy music over this part. <laughs> Price is right. Do, 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 do. No, they... All right. The the issue came out in March 6, 2017. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so Dave, Dave did not get his awards issue out until March of 2017 last year. Mm-hmm. And again, that was because there was a lot of uh, big deaths that happened. Uh, you know, uh, Ivan Koloff died. George Steele died. Chavo Guerrero died. Um, I think Jimmy Snuka had died um, the month before that, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was a lot of a lot of news that he wanted to cover, and that was a lot of it. But I think that also should have humbled him that his argument that he couldn't get the issue out in, in February anymore was a reason that he couldn't do this was just not reasonable. And nobody else seemed to really enjoy the fact that you were you were dealing with with trying to remember December matches into next December and that I'm sure he was getting a lot of December matches being forgotten and December matches of the following year being included on people's ballots. Yeah. 
And so also every other awards thing worked on a normal calendar year schedule. Has a December match ever won? Well, you could always check that out by going to indeedwrestling.com. And on indeedwrestling.com. Off the top of my head. Uh, I I keep a a detailed. I I think the answer is no. uh, I keep a detailed thing about the awards. Uh, page says 1980 through 2016 won awards and so every month i uh, i mean every year i update it with all the different uh results not just for the winners but for all the different matches here um we have seen matches here maybe i can just try doing 12 slash we you know pro wrestling match of the year the Sami Zayn versus neville match yeah. um from nxt got seventh place yeah. one year i think i voted for that match, um, for match of the year that year and that also was nominated for Best Major Wrestling Show. Uh, TLC has been voted for Worst Wrestling Show in 2015, I guess it would have been. Worst Match of the Year was the Big Show versus Eric Rowan Stairs match from uh, 2014. Yeah. Um, Mark Hunt versus uh, Silva for an MMA Match of the Year got third place. Ronda Rousey versus Misha Tate was on on uh, 12-28-13. Um, UFC 28, uh, TLC, uh, some the the... Uh, the Shield versus uh, Team Hell No and Ryback uh, got an honorable mention one year. Kevin Steen versus El Generico got mentioned one year. They they were in December. Uh, Kane Vel- Velquez versus Junior Dos Santos was a uh, like almost a Christmas Eve match. Agawa, for G- yeah. So they they always make number. You know they they get in there. Final battle one year was in December. Win. I, I'm not seeing any here where they won. I'll have to also search quickly for the word December. Like I think um, – Well, oh, they did. Here's one where they won. The worst wrestling, major wrestling show, WWE, ECW, December to Dismember, did win the uh, worst wrestling show in the year – going back up here – 2007 awards. Yeah. Uh, so you could argue that one would not have been qualified. But no, they're, I mean they haven't won. But you could also argue that's the reason they haven't won yeah. is by the time you're voting for them, you're, thir- you're, 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 you're almost 13 months out by that time. Yeah. So I think like so. the 97 awards, the 97 awards would include December 96, and that's, that's the, the December 6, 1996 match between uh, with Akiyama and Masawa against Kwada and Talwage. I think it's one of the greatest matches of all time, and that's what's the 97 match of the year. It's like it's Masawa and Kobashi versus Steve Williams and Johnny Ace from like September 97, a match that nobody really remembers. Yeah, and and MMA for a while there was doing a lot of the the New Year's Eve shows uh, that were really big, and so I also feel like that might have influenced him a little bit. Is that he really wanted to include those all kind of in the prior year, um, rather than having to argue about you know did something because that does happen sometimes where people argue well if it happened in Japan on this date but it was the U.S. on this date or vice versa, you know how does it go? Um, but yeah, yeah. So th- they've been matches that have been. Highly ranked, but I'm glad to see him kind of coming into the 21st century and dealing with the fact that we we live in a digital instant era and uh, we can deal with the stuff um, on a calendar year, which is so much easier for people to kind of sort through all their information is it is awkward to add December in and exclude December out all the time. And also the other thing is that we can also do comparisons then to calendar year fiscal information. There you go. Yeah, so when you say who's the biggest draw of the year, you can actually just include the whole year rather than having to say, well, plus December from last year. True. So, um, so Dave had his list of what he called kind of the stories of the year. Oh, wait, do, you, this... do you have any votes? Do you, are you, are you going to vote in the, in the awards? I probably won't. Will you? I uh, 
I, I will probably try and vote on the awards if I spend some time in the next two weeks here catching up on some matches mm-hmm. and doing a lot more thinking. Um, ultimately, I would probably like to only vote on the, the categories that I feel comfortable voting in. Yeah. Uh, I would be very curious. Actually, I should check the Observer right now to see if he's renamed uh, – what is it? Most overpushed, or well, there's one category that that oh, underrated, we've been arguing underrated, overrated, underrated, overrated. That we should just rename those yeah. uh, because they no longer mean whatever it is that people think they mean. Yeah, it's it, it overpushed, underpushed. Yeah, let's see here. Overrated, underpushed. I'm struggling here. Why, why can't I seem to find it? Um, awards. Am I in the wrong issue? I'm probably in the wrong issue because, as usual, when I go to the Observer site and I click on, you know, the newsletter and it brings me up the top, you know, Observer newsletter, that is, of course, not the most recent Observer newsletter. Most overrated, most underrated. I'm looking at the most recent issue. It yeah, still says so. overrated, underrated. Yeah. And, and though it says most overrated, the wrestler who gets the biggest push despite lacking ability or charisma. And there's only 10 so, category A awards. Is that – that's fewer than in the past, isn't it? And everything else is category B. There's – let's see. The count is 37 category B awards and only 10 of them are category A. And the difference when you vote between category A and category B is in category A, you give your top three. And in category B, you only give one. Right? Has that always been the case in the past? There's only 10 of them that are Category A? Four. I count 24 last year. I was counting as, as, as you were waiting for me to respond yeah. here. I, I think so maybe, last maybe what year, he's doing here to, 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 to get it out earlier is maybe like, okay, I only have to do 10 awards that have a top three. Maybe that's what he's yeah. thinking. So let's do, um, let's do some quick. It's like Rookie of the Year is a Category B award. Exactly. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to off straw is a is a category B award. Feud of the year is a category B award. Yeah. So I will read off last year uh, an award, and then you have to say whether it's one of these top ten. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. The Luthez Ric Flair Award for the Wrestler of the Year. Category A. Mixed Martial Arts Most Valuable. Category A, of course. Uh, They call that an MMA Most Valuable Fighter now. Is what he's calling it. Um, again, I think adding the word fighter so that he can make it clear that he wants MMA people and wrestlers separated. The next one is called Most Outstanding Wrestler. Can you vote for Sin Cara for Most Valuable MMA Fighter? Why would he be? Never mind. Because <laughs> he's fought people. Uh, oh, oh, that's Sin Cara. Yeah, Hunico Sin Cara. Yes. No, 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 no. Um, uh, most Outstanding Wrestler. Category here. Uh, is a category A. Most outstanding fighter of the year. Category A. Beck's best box office draw. Last year. Right. Last year was an A category, is yeah. no longer an A category, right, correct? Right. Correct. Feud of the year. Category A, category B this year. It is a category B, okay. Tag team of the year. Category A, and it is a I'm looking at it. It is still a category A. Yep. Most improved. That's probably a category in the past, and I think it's category B now. Yeah, it is. It is category B. Yeah. Most charismatic is now a category B. Uh, the Brian Danielson Award, also known as the Best Technical Wrestler Award. Yeah, all, all that, those three style awards are all category Bs now. Long- uh, the Bruiser Brody Memorial Award, known as the Best Brawler Award, mm-hmm. is now category B. Best Flying Wrestler is now a category B. Mm-hmm. 
most overrated it's be the is Rey now Mysterio category. Award someday, isn't it? Probably, when Rey, probably. When Rey Mysterio retires or something. Or the the or the uh, Ricochet Award. Yeah, there there all you know. go. Yes. Uh, most there. overrated is uh, now a Category B award. Most underrated is now a Category B award. Mm-hmm. Promotion of the year is still a Category A award. Uh, best weekly show is still a Category A award. Uh, Pro Wrestling Match of the Year, I would assume, is yep, is still a Category A award. MMA Match of the Year is a Category A award. Though Rookie of the Year, Best Non-Wrestler, Best TV Announcer, Worst TV Announcer, those are all Category B awards. And then what about Best Major Show? Is that A or B? I think that's always been A. Mm, the worst has. I don't know. Though I notice here, Best on Interviews is, in fact, a uh, an award. And did I mention that one? Already as an A for last year? I don't year? know, but it, it's still A. It is. Yes, it was A. It was it, last year, Conor McGregor won handily, followed by The Miz, Chris Jericho, Kevin Owens, and Paul Heyman. Um, interesting. So I, I'm glad to see him moving a lot down to Bs because I, I do think some things like Rookie of the Year, um, treating it as a Category A award is, is A. It's been so poorly defined. Even Dave himself had trouble answering a question this year when someone said, well, here's a guy from Australia. Does he deserve to be a rookie of the year if he's already been working? And Dave kind of hemmed and hawed, and it kind of sounded like he had no idea who this guy was uh, in the first place, but then just kind of said, well, if you're not working for a major promotion steadily, then you are eligible. But if you are, then you're not. So Brandon Thurston is still eligible to be rookie of the year. Yeah, I think I am. Uh, like Dal- Dalton Castle signed. was eligible – a couple years ago and i had one of his first matches with him in 2009 and this like in- i i wrestled the guy in 2006 so he had matches before before that when he was messing around earlier than that huh yeah well you know he was he we he was around yeah he was around I, I i wouldn't say we had a match on a show in front of people but i i'm i'm positive i trained with him um at least once or twice because i remember how ridiculously strong the guy was already then huh yeah yeah he was he was pretty cool yeah. uh by that was yeah that had to be by 06 because i was gone after that so i had met him before then mm-hmm. so yeah so a good example yes that he you know so it's i'm glad they're just moving those to other categories so if you're if you can't define it well it shouldn't be in in a category a award in my opinion and if you can't make a good strong definition of why people are eligible or not eligible um it seems to come from the same vein as like we're gonna vote for people for hall of fame candidacy when they're age 35 like it's it's not the same. Either you're trying to take a sports like award and and make it work for pro wrestling, and there's differences between pro wrestling and, and most sports that makes this not make a lot of sense. Top contenders: Yuka Yuki Yuya Aoki, Tetsuya Aito, Juda Mayaki, Yuki Yuki Shika, Katsumi Takashima, Yusuke Okada. Tasuku Tora, Yuki Onio, Henry Henare, who I know yep. is, is a New Japan guy. Uh-huh. I recognize that name. Naomi uh, Yoshimura, Katsuya Katamura, Katamura Austin yeah. Theory, mm-hmm. uh, Shota Omino, another New Japan guy, Aren Narita, New Japan, uh, Tetsuhiro y- Yagi, Takahito Nakano, Myron Reed, Kid. La- uh, Lycos, Tomoyuki Oka, another uh, New Japan. Leo Tonga, uh, New Japan, one of the one of the yeah. clan. Yeah, the, uh, uh, Travis call. Huckabee, uh, Lacey e- Evans, Bianca B- Belair, Belair. Uh, both people that Belair showed up in uh, May Young Classic this year. Yeah. 
Reina Gonzalez, who I think also was in uh in in uh May Young this year. Uh Tenara Conti, Microman, which uh I think should definitely win this one. Uh have you ever seen the Microman match? No, but I've I've heard of him on Twitter. You, Legendary man. Do you think this is the year where someone wins an award out of irony? Out of irony. <laughs> hey, he drew a gate. He drew a gate for him to wrestle. So I would argue uh, he, he's beating 99% of the people on this this uh, list so far. Okay. Uh, Zachiarius and uh, Galilito, mm-hmm. uh, which whose names I just butchered. Last big three were Matt Riddle, Leo Rush, and Fred Yeti. Yahi. Yehi. Yehi. Yehi from Evolve. Uh, Matt Riddle, of course, from Matt, Matt, Matt Riddle, just an enormous, you know, uh, he's actually a guy who would look up to see how many matches he had this year. He he was someone who really broke through yeah. and had a, a killer year. Uh, let's see here. How many matches did Matt Riddle do this year? From Allentown, Pennsylvania, only 31 years old, signed to the WWN promotion, whatever that means. Yeah. And he did 144 matches. So you could probably argue Matt Riddle is about as high profile of an indie guy uh, that was out there this year next to, like we said, uh, Pentagon Jr. Lee, or yeah. Keith Lee. Yeah. Um, so really interesting. Let me go through really quickly uh, just the 24 stories that Dave said were the biggest of the year. And then I just want to give my you know, kind wrestler of, of the year. Who's your wrestler of the year? Jeez. Oh, uh, he went back to it. Um, that's that's well, what I was trying to here. ask you about in the first place. I know, I know. I'm, I, I keep avoiding it and keep bringing it back. Uh, the Wrestler of the Year, which is also the, the Thez uh, Flair Award, it's open to pro wrestlers, a combination of everything, being important, influential, positive manner from a business pers- perspective, combining box office impact as well, strong match quality in worked matches. I got to go with Kenny Omega on that one. Um, you know, he had the best matches of the year and he helped New Japan become bigger. And he's built himself up for a very important feud in this new year without burning out the other feud that he was working on. Um, I, I would go yeah. with Okada. I think it's either Omega or Okada. I can't see voting for anybody else. I mean, AJ Styles has obviously done a great job working this year, but I don't think he he because he was not on top the whole year as the champion. I don't think he would be in the same caliber as Okada or Omega yeah. was. And, and Styles is great. What are the I guess what are the great styles matches that have happened this year? He had a great match with John Cena. John Cena he Royal had, Rumble, yeah. He had a good match with Finn Balor. He had um some other stuff he did that was yeah. really good. Yeah, I mean, the, the Rumble match with Cena was was really good. Uh but I, turning it around with with uh you know just turning it around with um uh, uh gender, you know, I think is an accomplishment in itself that, but, you know. But the match quality of, of the gender matches would wasn't stand out or anything. I think I think No, AJ's, but just I think AJ's great. But he hasn't had the matches that Okada or even probably Omega has had. Not because, gosh, no, yeah. Not because Styles is necessarily better or worse than either of those two guys, but just the opportunity to have those matches has not been given to Styles. And then Lesnar didn't really work all that many matches this year. Obviously, that four away they had was incredible. Braun, um, you know, I would say has been. Braun deserves a lot of credit for yeah. probably most improved yeah. for you know most charismatic for things like that. He's done a tremendous job of just building maybe? up a star. This is he a gimmick? Oh sure, he's a gimmick for sure. Monster Among Men, yeah. the indestructible garbage machine. Yeah, yeah, he's he's so that's been incredible. Uh, I I do hope that that uh, viral meningitis does get at least an honorable mention in Booker of the Year. Yeah. Beck's box office draw. I've heard some people say like, well. 
if it's just about attendance, we should just like, why is this an award? It should just be a math formula that I guess you and I do. And then we just declare the winner. Which is interesting because I don't think best Beck's best box office draw is a, uh, a class A award anymore. Now that I'm looking here at the 10, it, it's not. There is, yeah. there is of course, most outstanding wrestler, which is working ability only, um, drawing power, charisma, push. Conor McGregor's going to uh, win this for ha- having a, a huge boxing match. He should probably, sh- oh, I th- probably shouldn't count, right? Well, we're gonna let's count see here. MMA, what, that's one thing, but you're going to count boxing under this too? Well, but you could argue. Or is this just the uh, award for whatever the Observer covers? Well, yeah, Beck's best box office draw is self-explanatory. It's open to everyone, whether participating in worked or legitimate matches. Notice how, how careful he is there not to say MMA. Yeah. <laughs> this is open to the person who moves ticket sales, TV ratings, and or pay-per-view sales. Does this uh, include you, soccer you, then? Because those are uh, legitimate <laughs> matches. You know, clearly, because people have asked a lot. I, I think what Dave would say, and this is the same argument I've heard him use about Brock Lesnar before, is that if Brock Lesnar's drawing ability is based on the gimmick he used from MMA, then that's why it counts. Versus if the gimmick is not based in MMA or wrestling, it's not part of the story. So his argument would be Conor McGregor was a draw in the boxing match with Floyd Mayweather, not because he was seen as a great boxer, but because he was an MMA fighter who was really good at promoting. So we should be considering Dwayne Johnson's draw as a movie star because his his fame started with pro wrestling. (laughs) Perhaps, you know, that there you go. I think that's what you should do is I think it says person who moves ticket sales, TV ratings or pay-per-view sales. Yeah, I bet you I bet you uh, uh, Rocky sold more pay-per-views, sold more more, you know, movies on demand, which we would call a Mm pay-per-view on uh, all these different things than probably anyone else. Uh, so I think you should have Rock as number one, he's, number two, Conor McGregor. Closed circuit sales, man. <laughs> yeah. Going to number theaters. one, Rock. Number two, Conor. Probably number three, uh, Floyd. I, I think it's easy to understate Floyd's ability is, is, in this. Is, that, is Floyd a pro wrestler or a mixed martial artist, though? Well, he has a pro wrestling record. That's true. He has, he has, he has appeared – yeah, he's he's appeared at WrestleMania, and then Dave would say, "Well, that's as a boxer," and then we get into this this conundrum. But um, I I would say, yeah, Connor's going to win this one. Um, you know, who's going to win this for pro wrestling? Who who for pro wrestling? Who we think of as a full time. I don't know. Then you get Brock, but who that we think of as at least as a pro wrestler? Yeah, that's a great question. Ooh. Is it Brock? Is it Okada? Is it I, Roman? I guess you could. Is it Okada? Yeah. Is it Braun? Yeah. Is it um? I think next year Jericho's going to get some thought for this because I think Russell Kingdom's going to do well, and the Observer reader, especially, I think, is going to want to credit Jericho. Yeah, I think Omega is an interesting ex- example of one because you could argue that as New Japan grew for the year, it was because Omega helped kind of drive the feud continuing to go up mm-hmm. and the interest in mm-hmm. in that. You could say it's it's um you know some form of of being the elite just there you know they're moving tickets around in the world and you could say it's it's ah, you know whoever zeus on top of all japan or whoever you know 40 percent improvement for the year right maybe it's dave Meltzer for giving the match six stars which allowed uh, new japan to have uh, so much success those are all good questions but uh i like your argument that we should be voting for rocky here yeah so and and as 
What's in this INTP thing? Something about noticing patterns and inconsistencies. <laughs> that is for certain. That is for certain. Um, Dave's 24 biggest matches or stories of the year was match quality through the roof. Anthem changes over with TNA. The UK battle, specifically also WWE launching UK. Flow Slam, the implosion, and launch, right? Well, But the implosion for sure. Uh, Kurt Angle returning WWE and wrestling. Orton winning the Royal Rumble, which, um, wow, that seems like a footnote of history right now. Yeah. Um, a crash trying to become a major group and somewhat imploding. Uh, Lucha Underground doesn't tape all year. Uh, so, again, kind of an interesting non-story, but a story because it held a lot of people kind of hostage because of that. Uh, notable deaths, all just, you know, everyone from Bobby Heenan and Lance Russell to, like I said, Ivan Koloff and Jimmy Snuka and lots of other people. Uh, WWE Network stagnates, but the stock grows. I do think that's a, a story, of course, I would talk about being the elite, just kind of the the rise of their brand at Hot Topic and Bullet Club and everything else they've done. Without WWE. Uh, Ring of Honor. Ring of Honor having their biggest show by far in history. Um, all the injuries. Dave says that's a story. I think they're normal. I think we have them every year. But um, maybe you could argue we're, we're getting them a lot because we're not doing well, anything about it. 16 was worse because, remember, that's that's the WrestleMania that was hindered by all these injuries. What, what, yeah, what, exactly. what are the injuries? I, I would I would think if we sat down and counted them, I don't know, injuries among wrestlers in major promotions, I think it would be more, at least in WWE, I think it would be more last year. Dave wrote, WWE was beset with almost a record number of injuries really? the year. But he mentioned, I think he was also actually talking about the bigger injuries. So Hamna being uh, paralyzed, Takiyama having his, you know, paralyzation, Shibata. Yeah. You know, and, and so those those three are definitely really big. I mean, we, we could also say the year that Masawa died. You know, yeah. that's an injury. That, I think you know, Homna is not paralyzed. I think I've, I've seen a picture of him today where he's standing. But he, he did yeah. suffer a very serious neck injury and he hasn't wrestled since. And, and and he was paralyzed for for some time. It sounded like yeah. um, it, that he's it's he's improved a lot. But yeah, and and I think for sure Takiyama, Shibata, and Hamna, um, those injuries have been surprising, and you know said a lot about you know whether or not they're getting the right medical uh, screening and care. And uh, Tanahashi at the same time not taking time off, even despite his enormous amount of injuries. Um, I think there's some work to that too, to the Tanahashi injury. Maybe, maybe I, I, I view it. I, I, I do view it as a guy who's trying to gut through something that maybe he shouldn't be trying to gut through all the time. That is, is taking years off his, his career. Uh, but they mentioned here, Ambrose Rusev, big show, big cast and big cast is a big one to me because that was a guy that they were going all in on and gets injured. And, you know, he's a footnote now. We forget about him. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Hardy, Bailey, Jeff Hardy's another one where, you know, the, the Hardys were trying to come up with something and, and you wonder would Matt Hardy have been able to get back to where he is now if Jeff Hardy had not left the scene. Yeah. Uh, Bailey, Biggie, uh, Strowman, Strowman was another big one where, you know, that really interfered with the timing on a lot of things and, and hard to say whether those injuries were self-inflicted or not, right? His favorite spot running really fast into something. Um, Seth Rollins, Brian Kendrick, Kendrick's one is, is awful with the, uh, the Atami going the, the, the GTS, yeah. uh, Cedric Alexander, Samoa Joe, R-Truth, Dawson, Woods. You could also argue, you know, the year that TJ per or not TJ Perkins, the year that Tyson Kidd nearly died in the ring uh, was a pretty bad injury that, you know, was way underplayed. 
Uh, Brian Danielson, of course, uh, having to retire is a pretty bad injury. So we, we have seen other years where there's been some pretty big injuries. But he's pointing out there's a lot of guys that took time off here. And, hey, maybe it's also good that, uh, hey, they're in a position where they can feel you can take time off and you don't feel like you're afraid you're going to lose your spot. If anything, we're seeing more guys try to kind of walk away, you know, the Austin Aries or the uh, the Nevels of the world than we are even seeing guys who feel scared to, to, to leave for, for time to get surgery. Or I, I would suggest that a part of this is is – related to story number one here, match quality through the roof, that the standard of, of match quality and the expectation of the audience, I think, raises every year. Maybe it's raised in the last couple of years more than it has in years before that. And that asks more of your body, and that probably correlates to more injuries. No, oh, I'd agree with that for sure. Um the the Brian Kendrick story, I got a lot of heat on Twitter because I posted that a Tommy was a bust, like uh, the biggest bust since Tom Bob Tommy since uh, Tom yeah. yeah, and uh, people did not care for that comparison, and I got very angry. And I I want to clarify a couple things. Number one, I think Ken does incredible. I think he's a tremendous wrestler. I do think he has not had a good run with WWE, and I don't think it's all WWE's fault. Yeah. I think he's tried to change his style. I think he's lacked kind of improvement the level of other people that have come in after him and have been able to fit in much faster and figure it out Mm -hmm. solve the puzzle and he has been injury prone you know if you look at how many times he's taken time off since 2014 it's a lot and when i say he injures others and injures himself you know people will say well is it his fault that so-and-so hurt him no but at the same time a lot of guys work with guys that aren't that great and you know don't get injured by them and it says that maybe your body was really beat up by the time you got here you started in like 2000 2001 and it's unfortunate in and i i do think he's a great talented wrestler i just don't think he's gonna work out in america i'm sad to say that but i think it's the truth is that you know a Tommy being on 205 with Enzo is not a place that's going to make you a Hall of Famer. And at one time, he was someone like Mystico. Yeah. We were talking about being a Hall of Famer because he was doing so well on, you know, Wrestler of the Year awards. And he's uh, moved to heavyweight. And since then, it's kind of been a, a, a sloping downward curve. Yeah. And so I see him as a guy that was really great. And, you know, his time in the sun is, is declining a little bit. And I think he's going to have a second coming. When he goes back to Japan, I think he's going to have an, like a renaissance and get a lot better. And then everyone's going to say, oh, it's WWE's fault. He was no good. But I think, you know, some people th- flourish in certain environments. And I just don't think this has been an environment he's flourished in. And I don't point the finger solely at WWE in that situation either. Yeah. He's somebody who I think I would probably vote for for a Hall of Fame. I would give him strong consideration um, because, because <coughs> of the, the caliber of worker he's been over such a long period of time. Uh, but it will be difficult for him to get in because especially the voters are going to – I don't know. He, he, he wouldn't be a U.S. candidate though, would he? He would probably end up being a Japanese candidate. So maybe he'll be all I right. think it would be – yeah, it would be yeah. similar to some of these other guys where we've said where they're a bust here but they're hit there. So Steve Williams, you know, for instance, got it on the Japanese ballot more than he got on the uh, – I think the U.S. ballot. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, just I just wanted to bring up that one. So I, I know I took some heat for saying that. I I I, I don't care. <laughs> so you, you gotta you gotta save your radical opinions. I've noticed you gotta save your radical opinions for a podcast because on on Twitter people will just they, people love to hate on Twitter. And well, I also I also podcast is a like much an more intimate, relaxing setting where people people are most most likely to like us and not hate us when we're when we're talking here with our ASMR voices to calm them and relax them. 
I don't understand what ASMR is. It's like a – did you see that? We got, we got a feedback from one of our listeners. I did. I saw it and I, I Googled it and it said, listen here for soothing ASMR yeah. voices. It's, it's, it's a, I, don't, I don't do audio at work. It's, it, what does it stand for? Aut, aut, automatic sensory meridian response. It's, I, I don't experience this. But when Some people, when they hear certain calming sounds or voices, they get like tingles in their head or something. Yeah, my goodness, my goodness. And it, it's like I don't know, it relaxes people or something. They enjoy it. Uh, Dave's story number fourteen was key retirements. Uh, he he brought up Mister, you know, uh, Etsushi Anita, uh, uh, Manami uh, Toyota, Manami mm-hmm. Manami Toyota. Mm-hmm. Thank you, uh, Jim Cornette, supposedly give, hanging up his manager. Uh, throne, um, great Kabuki, obviously retiring after fifty three years. Kind of a shame that, like, I think. Um, Simper Vivi was saying he really wished that, you know, he could have done it at the Tokyo Dome or something really exciting there. But but that was pretty cool uh, seeing that that stuff. And then, of course, Undertaker maybe retiring, probably not retiring. Um, but just yeah, those are some Hall of Famers, you know, walking away. So that that is a big deal. Uh, some of those big retirements. New Japan comes to the U.S. Of course, that's a huge story that they're actually doing it. Uh, Mauro Ronaldo quits WWE and returns. Um, that was an interesting kind of behind-the-scenes story, and and all the you know you did all that work about you know the oral history of JBL bullying on Fightful and other things that were kind of intriguing, kind of side stories to this whole thing. Yeah. And the fact that you know he's got a he's got a pretty sweet deal now that he gets to call NXT and report to Paul Levesque, and he doesn't have to go up to Vince. And he, he has a completely different kind of chain of command. So it's an intriguing thing because it says a lot about what the company is willing to deal with, what the company is willing to deal with for the purposes of not having litigation against them. And, um, you know, everybody's a worker. Let me just put it that way, is that if you're in wrestling, you got to have that attitude that you got to look, look out for yourself, right? Indeed. And you got to get – you got to get the right deal for yourself. And so it sounds like Morrow's done that. I think that's good. And Dave had been very suggestive, I think – at least up until the point where he was introduced at NXT, that there was going to be some big news story related to this that's going to come out. Um, but maybe rehiring him headed that off. Sure. And I, I mean, I have in my life dealt with reporters where they've asked me to help them with a story. And depending on the level of the, the outlet that's working on it, it can take forever. I mean, that Vice story... That came out. I think I worked on it with the guy for six months, yeah. you know, talking to him about stuff. Ian Williams, right? Yeah, yeah. The one that about Shane coming back yeah. and not coming back and all that stuff. So, you know, six months he was working on that story and he did a lot of great research. And, you know, that that's not uh, – but it just says how long you have to do for some of these outlets that want to do an expose or want to get somewhere. And at times – you know, reporters are people of short attention span, so they, they want to move on to the next thing. So there's a possible I think it Dave said it even as much as like Newsweek or something was working on kind of like a bigger expose on things. And it sounded like this kind of got headed off a lot by that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I can see that. And it will be interesting with all the new financial things happening in WWE this year. We're going to see an uptick of articles about WWE and it's going to be interesting to see who gets contacted by that or who has already been contacted to start talking about that. To talk about WWE? Yeah. And, and how the investors are going to get really interested in it again for another, you know, 12 hours. So it'll be intriguing. Uh, WrestleMania in Orlando, just how big it was. Uh, Jinder Mahal and his title reign, Ronda Rousey moving to pro wrestling. What a what a what a Dave Meltzer like like story, right? Ronda Rousey in pro wrestling, his his favorite things all in one. Yeah. 
Um, Ric Flair brushed with death on the 30 for 30. Dr. Wagner Jr. loses his mask in the highest payoff in uh, Mexican history, a quarter million dollars. The Mae Young Classic with WWE pushing, you know, an all women's tournament. And yet at the same time, it, it sounds like almost signing no one from it. Uh, you, you know, just uh, today, Jazzy uh, Gabbert. Gabbert, yeah. Gabbert was doing a story about how apparently when she went to do her medicals, her neck was all messed up and WWE didn't want, want her anymore. And, uh, hey, I'm not surprised, right? If if you're hiring a pro wrestler and they're they're not in physical shape, I'm not surprised they don't want you. It's disappointing. It's tough for the wrestler. Well, similar but, for Iwatani, right? For whom? Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, the Stardom star, yep. who uh, we we all thought was coming in to uh, to to be Mayu, right next to uh, Kari Sane. Yeah, Mayu Iwatani, right? Yeah. So it says a lot too about when that happens. That you know we're we're doing. I'm surprised you know we don't have um, best female wrestler categories for for uh, uh, the Observer Awards. I know some people feel that's you know sexist to start splitting men and women, but you do kind of feel like on some level you, it might be important to to kind of point out who the best female wrestlers are and the best male wrestlers, and then maybe have a, a total overall category. Well, but, Toyota, I think, is one most outstanding, hasn't she? In the, she has. In the she has. And that would be the argument they would use to say, hey, you, we don't need to. Yeah. But I'd also argue that there's a lot of really good female wrestlers that need to be acknowledged as, you know, some of the best in their sport, but maybe, you know, they're never going to break the top five or top ten. Someday. Yeah. Um, Alpha versus Omega. I think Dave was putting down that he thought this feud was going to be really big, this Jericho thing. And I have to say, I, I agree in the sense, like I got really annoyed a couple years ago when the uh, the Cormier uh, Jones feud, like one like feud of the year before the match even happened. Really? And and then like the match ended up being a bust anyway. So it was like it was so bad and it, it bugged me so much. And so I it bugs me when we like, you know, kind of laud feuds before they happen. But at least in pro wrestling, you can argue that the feud is part of the build and the build then, you know, has elements that you get to see on shows like, you know, Jericho and Omega have at least made contact yeah. at the press conference and at shows and people have been able to pay and see them do things. Mm-hmm. Plus, I do think, you know, I've been a, I was a pretty harsh critic of Jericho based on that book he released this year. But I will say I, I am highly impressed with the ability he has done to capture the North American viewer of interest for new Japan for this Tokyo dome show and to promote himself in a way that makes people care about Chris Jericho in the year of our Lord 2018. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then lastly, he called it the greatest G one in history. Um, Good, good stories for him. Here are the stories that I said that I thought maybe needed to be uh, covered a little bit more, and I don't think he actually um, mentioned any of them. He mentioned one of the seven, I think. Number one was WWE Network launching in China, and Dave kind of dismissed this by saying, well, they didn't have a big effect on the the stock or on the uh, actual sub numbers. It doesn't matter. If you've been listening to conference calls, they've been talking about this ad nauseum for four years. And so the fact that, you know, they actually pulled this off, it's a huge coup because it's very difficult to work with the Chinese government and get everything going and not in some way just shoot yourself in the foot. And so I think it's an enormous story for them, the fact that they actually did get themselves to the point where you can watch WWE programming in China as a Chinese fan, plus the WWE Network is available. Um, Plus, we also got some incredible uh, comments from, I think it was Laura. uh, Laura. Martin. Not Laura Martin, oh, uh, Laura Brevetti. No, not even Laura Brevetti. Um, who am I thinking of? The uh, the the George Barrios's partner. The the other one oh, is always with Michelle him. Wilson. Jeep. 
Michelle Wilson, thank you. Michelle Wilson, where I think she was the one who used like the we have 200, you know, we have 20 million fans in China or something like that in the middle of that Wall Street Journal article. Um, the second big story was the $200 million of funding that WWE got. I, I can't overplay how weird it is for them to be taking out such a big loan at this time just to improve their balance sheet. And it, it leverages them to do moves whenever they want. So if they want to go buy Flow Sports, they can probably go buy Flow Sports. I don't think they could with just $200 million. It would need a lot more than that. But just to give you an idea of like they could make a big move like that at any time. Um, hell, uh, Vince just did $100 million And think about how much coverage that got. They did twice as much and no one cared. Um, number three, the demonization of wrestling content on YouTube. Yeah. You know, why did what culture pro wrestling die this year? Well, probably because of this, as one example. Um, why did indies start to struggle with uh, trying to change their model of how they're funding themselves? Yeah. Well, because of stuff like this. This is a huge story that I think was really underappreciated uh, in Dave's list here. It's bigger to me than Ronda Rousey goes into pro wrestling because that's a speculative story where this is an actual story that affected a lot of different companies and changed the business. It affected a lot of indies for about, I don't know, April through October or so. So that's that's about six months. Uh, but I think it also taught a lot of them that maybe this is not the way that we, we can monetize our content in this world, and we're going to have to think of other ways to continue to make money. Yeah, it, it calls the reliability into question for sure. Hugely, yeah. Um, uh, number four is the announcement of the big corporate mergers, Sinclair and Tribune, Disney uh, getting all the BAM tech, and then later the 21st Century Fox, Disney announcing a streaming service for 2018 and another one for 2019. Those are huge stories that are going to impact the media and wrestling and sports landscape. And I, I think it's foolish not to mention them because I think it changes the number of players and the available players in the space going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, WWE's legal success, you know, not a single mention here about the CT lawsuit or the royalties lawsuit. Those are huge risks for the WWE that they've successfully defanged. But I think it's really important that we continue to remind people that, you know, if they don't address and defang these things it's putting them in a terrible legal situation where people can go back unbelievably long distances and make all sorts of wild claims against wwe that could have huge financial impact for them or just huge headache for them if they have to fight it because the one thing wwe hates is being in the spotlight where they have to turn over records and kind of try to explain their practices particularly in the 80s and 90s especially when it comes to the health of quote-unquote independent contractors yeah and at the i mean what what did, uh, what did the NFL lawsuit pay out? Oh, hundreds of millions, right? Yeah. Maybe, may, I mean, set up lots of things. I, I would have to, I would have to actually spend more time kind of studying that. That's actually something I, I hope that someone writes a good book about. Um, so I mean, I is, guess what I'm getting is, at is what worst case scenario if there was a, a, a judgment against WWE, they could be paying out hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, or is, the, or is know, this a smaller scale? So not so much. I mean, the monetary claims here, geez, oh gosh, I'm going to NFLconcussionsettlement.com and it's just uh, just this enormal, enormous thing. In fact, right now we're still in the monetary claims portion. Um, but yeah, it says, you know, it's going to uh, probably be more than a billion dollars of the settlement and, and millions of dollars for some players. And I, I don't know. You know, whether or not, you know, they said the first two claims that have been settled, just two claims was nine million dollars for the NFL. And it's billion. Yeah, for the NFL. So, I mean, billions of dollars for the NFL. I Do I think WWE is going to end up in that? Not quite. 
But do I think they run a risk that they have to, you know, establish a pension or establish medical testing or establish medical uh, studies for wrestlers? You know, I, I read that list one time off of what Kairos Constantine said that they wanted. And some of the things sounded very realistic, like we want you to spend money on medical uh, studies about wrestling so we have a better understanding of, you know, what are the risks. That's not a ridiculous thing to ask for. To say, you know, we want you to actually fund and be able to say to people, yeah, you're 90, you know, you're 90 percent more likely to get Parkinson's, whatever it's going to be. Yeah. You know, not that I, I think you can conclusively answer those questions, but at least you can say I'm actually putting money towards that because part of their argument is that while they gave a lot of money to the CT Institute in, in Boston, that they have kind of stopped talking about wrestlers right. getting CTE after and, that. Uh, and Paul of on the board or something for the, for the National yeah, Legacy yeah. Institute. Not that Sports I, I actually – kind of buy that whole conspiracy but i think it's an interesting point which yeah. is you know there, there's something to be said about you know could you take some of your revenue and your profits and things and put it towards funds that would then help people that have that especially people that you built your business from mm-hmm. um and and you know there there is something to be said that uh even though you weren't expected to to fund your own pension in the the 70s you know what are we doing today to help those people mm-hmm. um and then uh, the, my last one here was just the live ad, live event maximization model. The fact that they're pushing so much more. They're doing holidays. You know, they pushed on Christmas this year to do shows uh, so they could do a live show. They're, they're continuing to raise their ticket prices. I really think that's a big story for WWE is that they're they're very quietly kind of trying to maximize that model and keep building their attendance numbers despite the fact that we're actually seeing average attendance going down. And so it's an intriguing thing to say, is it good or bad when your average attendance is going down? And um, is is that a sign that you're becoming less popular? Is that just a sign that you're, you know, uh, raising you're you're maximizing your revenue? Yeah. And one of the things I don't that think drives it's a sign me, at all that they're becoming less popular. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I'm saying like you can misread that statistic For if sure. you don't understand. Yeah. And and one thing Dave always gets wrong. Uh, I'll just straight up say he gets wrong. He says a lot of the times that every time they raised pay per view prices, they just sold more. That's not true. Every time they raised pay-per-view prices they generated more revenue and that's an important distinction is that sometimes buys would drop but the increase in revenue was greater than the drop in buys and that's what they're doing right now with live events they're maximizing their revenue by running more shows they're raising the price point and running more of the events and yeah it is like pay-per-view but you could but it's very possible you could argue there's probably more shows this year that did less than 2,000 people for wwe than in the last 20 years if you include NXT. Yeah. I mean, even last year, the, the Florida loop always does in the, in the low hundreds. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying now we've had WWE house shows doing 1,000, 1,200, 1,100, especially just on a, Monday night. A few, right? Was it Monday night? A few. Yeah. yeah. Some. But my point is we probably had more in the last year yeah. than we have in the last 20 years. Yeah. And there is something to be said that at a certain point – are you still making a marginal revenue on all your shows if you're drawing shows that only do 1,100 people? Mm-hmm. And how do you – how can you say the health – what is the health of a brand when a show is only doing 1,200 people in a certain city? Yeah. You know, what is what is the true health of your brand? Is the is the draw a brand? Is the day of the week the, the draw for all we know? Like, I, so, something to I, watch would be like the, uh, the operating income margin and the OEDA margins on live event segment, which I, which I yeah, happen to have open right now. It's like 30% I mean, it's in 2015, gone up. 29% in 2016, 25, 41, 23 in Q1, 2, 3 this year. Yeah. 
So, I mean, it, it's a good story in, in my mind that I think it's underreported and under-evaluated is how the live event model is actually working. You know, people kind of wait for someone else to crunch the numbers and then they blindly repeat it saying, oh, Sami Zayn versus Kevin Owens was the top house show draw of 2016. Yeah. Without understanding all of the caveats that go behind it. So that that's the one thing I really hope. And honestly, uh, the success of the WWE stock price, the fact that they were able to get it above $30, keep it above $30, the fact that Vince McMahon – the CEO, the chairman of the board, took out $100 million, $96 million in stock shortly before they're going to announce their new t- domestic TV rights deal. And it didn't collapse because of this football narrative is enormous to me. I think that's the the craziest story ever. And I think that's one that a lot of people are misunderstanding is that this football story is such a great smokescreen if it happens or even if it doesn't happen because it kept people from freaking out about a, such an important person taking so much money out of the business. He took less out. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.